0: Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on Toe. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a cast sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, Toe listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success, as sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait, launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash theories. This is an interview with Jonathan Pajot who invited me into his home, though I released it about two years ago. It was conducted two years ago, but I'm embarrassed about it and ashamed even because I was younger and nervously interrupting in an attempt to try and impress Jonathan, which is a quality or a characteristic that was there when I interviewed Janice Fiumengo as well, in the Janice Fiumengo interview, which is also on this channel. It's not surprising because it was recorded a day afterward. However, many of you enjoyed it. At the time it had a 98.5% like ratio, and I'm reposting it because of that. I have a larger audience now and perhaps many more people now will benefit from Jonathan's words. Jonathan Pajot is wonderful in the interview. There are what are called math prodigies, child prodigies in math. What they are generally are people who at a young age can take numbers, large numbers, sum them, multiply them, divide them in their head rapidly. Jonathan is like that with symbolism. He's able to watch a movie and almost instantaneously deconstruct it. His channel, The Symbolic World, will have you question the distinction between the literal and the metaphoric, which actually means it helps you or imposes a questioning of reality upon you. This can be either for good or for ill. I think it's for good, and if you make an assessment based on the comments and the people he's influenced, you would say it's for good as well. He's a talented figure, and for those of you who know Ramanujan, he's Ramanujan, the Ramanujan of the symbolism world. He came pretty much from nowhere with no formal training and has a preternatural ability in this domain. As an aside, this was for a documentary called Better Left Unsaid, which I directed, and is actually released now, so you can go to betterleftunsaidfilm.com to see the version with Jonathan Pajot in it. You can also watch it on iTunes and so on, but the director's version, the one that has Jonathan in it, the one that's more sesquipedalian and even mystical, that one is on betterleftunsaidfilm.com. Thank you, and if you enjoy seeing conversations like this, then please do consider going to patreon.com and supporting. You can make a custom pledge. Literally, each dollar—there's that word, literally. Literally, each dollar makes a difference financially as well as motivationally. It may even help metaphorically. Please enjoy the interview despite my asinine and unpolished, likely still unpolished, interview skills. Thank you. I'm here with the preeminent, the exigent, the pivotal— Paramount,
1: Paramount,
0: Jonathan Pajot, artist, carver, public speaker, symbolic translator. I guess, yeah, you could say that, something like that. Why don't you just tell me about what you do? Tell everybody about what you do, but <laughs> b- tell me.
1: All right, well, I, um, I'm mostly an artist. I make religious art, liturgical art, you could call it in the Orthodox tradition, but uh, in general, in let's say the kind of Christian medieval tradition. And that has led me to look into symbolism in the Christian tradition, but also in general, uh, looking at other religions, other traditions, but through other types of storytelling as well, fairy tales, mythology, and now modern storytelling, such as movies and novels and everything. And so looking into symbolic structures, uh, relating to my art has led me to becoming, becoming interested in symbolism in general and so in my daily practice by make in making icons i engage in that world let's say that symbolic world through my art making and then the way that that art integrates into the life of a church and in the life of a community is also part of that but then now for the past i guess two years now i've been doing a lot more of public speaking talking about symbolism in general how it relates to our life how it its structures are the Um, inform our perception of reality and our interaction with reality so that's what I've been doing through YouTube but also doing a lot of public speaking all over North America for the past two years now. So you said that you got started because you were an artist and so you
0: started studying the symbolic representations and what they mean but give me a timeline of your life so you were four (laughs) years old and you started this and then you were... Well
1: I know I when I was young I always kind of knew I was going to be an artist from when I was pretty young. But then I was also, my parents were Christian, I was a Christian, I was part of a evangelical church. And then when I studied uh, in college, when I studied at Concordia University, painting and drawing, I really hit a wall. It was just, contemporary art is an art which is very removed from what it's doing. You know, It's like a comment upon a comment upon a comment. Is is that another word for modern art or is that different? Well, contemporary art, you would say, you could you could use modern for the whole period, but usually we use the word modern for the early twentieth century up to about World War II, and then after World War II we start to talk about uh, moving towards what we could call postmodern art or contemporary art, which is even more let's say removed from um, more a comment like I said a comment upon a comment. It becomes about art itself. It becomes a kind of circular uh, playing with elements. Uh, so
0: the art piece of art that was just a urinal.
1: Yes, well that what, was modern. Well that, no, that was modern. But Duchamp, who made that urinal, is seen as a one of the seminal figures in bringing about what would be today installation art and contemporary art. So there are certain figures in modernism which lead into what we now consider people like Jeff Koons or Andy Warhol. You know they they take their their drive from peop, from peop, from from. Uh, people like Marcel Duchamp at the beginning of the century. So it was already already there at the beginning of the century. Let's say everything was kind of packaged up, and then it unfurled itself into now the kind of, on one hand, anything goes, but on the other hand, everything has to be packaged in a, a kind of post-cynical, uh, you know, ironic, double irony, triple irony. Um, so that's really what it is. So it was very difficult for me Coming in as someone who wanted to connect with reality, you know, who who as a person of faith, I wanted to make things which which weren't just this flighty ir- irony, you know, of, of of references, but wanted to connect with something real. And so I was just hitting a wall; I just couldn't couldn't make it happen. I got interested in some contemporary artists. For example, there's a German artist. His name is Anselm Kiefer, and he was the closest to what I was hoping to do. He was he was trying to bring back mythological thinking within uh, the artwork, but his work was still, it's still problematic because it's still in galleries, it's still prestige objects, objects which have no function in the world, right? We're actually so used to thinking that art doesn't have a function in the world that we forget that traditional arts in, in all cultures actually have uh, functions within a community. They, they integrate themselves within a worldview, within a, a community living. Um,
0: And so, and is that conscious? Do they consciously construct the art so that they're integrating one another? Or does that happen because they're communally putting together a piece of art and then they all respect it and revere it and it has their values embedded in it somehow? Well,
1: the traditional way of seeing art is very different from the contemporary way of seeing art. The way that traditional vision, pretty much, I would say, worldwide, you see art as a skill. And so the notion of art... Is we still use that word today when we say the art of cheese making or the art of this, the art of that. And so that's really the traditional way of understanding the word art. The word art actually means in Latin comes from the notion of fitting things together. So the capacity to fit things together properly, that's what art is. And so in a traditional vision of art, we we say things like uh, the art remains with the artist, right? The art is the skill of making things. And so the The object that is made has to serve a purpose. There's no such thing in a traditional vision as making art. You don't make art. You use art to make things. And so So the art is the tool. Art is the tool. Art is the skill. Art is the the capacity that you have mastered to make an object. And so then that object needs to have a function in the world. It needs to be integrated within a purpose. and that's probably one of the hardest things for people to understand is that art is not a value in itself. And once you understand that, at least when I understood that, it actually liberated my, me from a lot of problems because one of the problems we're always asking is, is this art? Is this art? You know, you, you, they, they come up with some crazy Jeff Koons, you know, blown up uh, Snoopy. And then the question is, is that art? And the answer to me now has become, I don't care. That's, that doesn't matter. That's not the point. The, whether it's art or not, that's not That's not a question. The question is, does it Does it matter? Does it have meaning? Does it have a function? Is it, is it integratable into society? Like, does it have a capacity to integrate into the world? Um, and so, when I, all of this was kind of playing around in my head at, uh, while I was studying fine art, and uh, it was so funny because it was so taking that that became the subject of my art. And so, the subject of my art in college was, how can I make art in this postmodern world, which is not just ironic, which is actually connected to a community, to, a, to, to a, let's say, a coherent worldview. Um, but then it was, it was still being very removed. It was like, I'm not doing it. I'm asking myself whether I can do it. Uh, and it was so funny because the last... My last uh, day in school when my uh, supervisor was giving me my final grade, she said, uh, it was so funny because I actually finished first in my program. Like I was really diligent, I was working hard, but she knew that it just wasn't, it wasn't working. And she, uh, she just looked at me and said, don't worry, you're getting all A's, it's okay.
0: What did she know was not working?
1: Well, she understood that if what I was trying to do, which is, for example, to be a Christian person, who was making art in a manner which was authentic, uh, and but was still somehow part of the contemporary art world, which is full of irony and full of double, uh, let's say, double removal and constant, you know, uh, a kind of flighty, removed version of reality. She just knew that it it wasn't wasn't happening, and so she just she just told me on the very last day of my of my degree, she said, "What are you doing here? Like you don't you don't belong here." You should go to seminary or something, you know. Uh, because you're too traditional? No, because she could see that the questions I was asking were not... It just It just wasn't fitting with the, with the contemporary art world. It just didn't have its place there. The then. questions such as,
0: such as the utility of asking whether or not a piece of art is a piece of art?
1: No, no, not that. That, that is something that everybody is always constantly asking. The, the problem was mostly to say, how can I, let's say, as part of a community let's say, a part of a Christian community, how can I make objects which fit into my life and into my world and into my community in, a, in an integrated way? You know, like, I mean, it's, it's, it really is a difference between, I didn't know yet because I, I hadn't discovered traditional art. It really is the difference between, let's say, I make, you're a musician and you come to me and you say, here's, my, here's what I'm trying to play, this is what I'm doing, then I, I, uh, I design a guitar for your particular needs. That's traditional art, right? Um, but and the postmodern version of that would be? The postmodern version of that would, would be, I will make a guitar that will question what a guitar, <laughs> guitar is. right? I will make a guitar that cannot, cannot be played, but will, will ironically question the whole tradition of what... Of what guitars have been and what music, and and then now today it's even worse because now it's going to show how the the guitar itself as an object Who's created by serve. by hierarchies of uh, of historical hierarchies. How does it? How is it a uh, uh, an object which which manifests or subverts that hierarchy? You know, um, that's the that's the difficulty of postmodernism. So that so I would that's not what I was wanting to do. You know that that's not what, that's not what I was trying to do. I was trying to create a lang- visual language which was which would integrate with my own experience with my own faith with my own participation in the community in the church and all that okay
0: let's get back we're gonna yeah. get back to this but let's get back to art as a tool yeah. so you're saying art as a tool so this snoopy example i don't know the reference i don't get jeff this Koon's, yeah. jeff coons's <laughs> big snoopy
1: yeah well i don't think he made a big Snoopy. he made he makes like for example he did uh he did a big a big sculpture which is a, a pile of play-doh So, like, imagine, like, a a small child has taken bits of Play-Doh and you just kind of jump, bundle up in a thing. He made a giant bronze uh, sculpture of a a pile of Play-Doh, for example. That's Jeff Koons. He he makes things like that.
0: So, this amalgamation of Play-Doh, is it art? Your answer is, it doesn't matter. What matters more is, does it matter? And does it provide meaning to a certain set of people? And does it integrate that people with the community?
1: I don't know if I'm yeah. It's, recapitulating it's something like that. Correctly. How does it integrate into the world? How does it participate in the world? How does it build instead of? And that I think that and then if it does, then it's art. Or no, it's not. Or it forget matter. about the question of whether the art, or not something's art, art. The art itself is the skill, right? It's the capacity to do that. That's what that's a, that's the traditional worldview. So art. Okay, so is, let's
0: take another example. Let's say someone's making someone's a great pizza maker. Yeah, and then they make something. Let's say they made it out of pizza but they're a good pizza maker. So then the question is, is that pizza? And you would say, well, did they use the skill of pizza making on that object?
1: The question would be, is it good? Because that's what a pizza is supposed to do. So can you eat it? Yes. And does it taste good? If you want to know if whether or not that, that, that pizza maker is a good artist, is whether or not the pizza does what the pizza is supposed to do, which is taste good, you know, whatever it is that it could, it could be to be healthy too. It depends on what the, the pizza maker wants to accomplish by making his pizza. You know, it's the same thing with uh, someone like I said, someone who would make a musical instrument. The question, if you ask, whether or not that that uh, you know the, the the musical instrument maker is a good artist, is whether or not that instrument does what it's supposed to do. Um, and that's it's very difficult for people to think that way now. You know, because even in the past, music was composed for reasons. We don't people didn't just compose music just to compose music. They would compose music for a requiem. Music for a mass, music for a feast, music to celebrate uh, someone's birthday, to celebrate the king. To to uh, the music was written t- to integrate into society. It it you wouldn't just write unless you were making studies or maybe you were studying to practice or you were doing things like that. But w- your ultimate purpose was to write a a uh, a piece of music which would which would function you know, even storytelling. That's been a while since we've had that. But even storytelling in a traditional sense, like if you think of the great epics, if you think of of, uh, the Iliad or the the Odyssey, those were community-building stories. Those stories were meant to create, to even create
0: what the Greeks were. So how do you judge a piece of art where the artist themselves doesn't know what the purpose of the piece of art was?
1: What do you mean, how do you judge it? it?
0: Because you're saying you can posit a goal and then... Whether or not you achieve that goal through the art, Mm. that's a measure of the arts. Which
1: not it's not necessarily what worth. You could you could go further than think that it's just based on the individual's purpose. It's it's a it's a broader thing than that. It's like if you let's say a a pizza maker decided you wanted to make a pizza that tastes. By the way,
0: all pizza makers, I'm sure there's a technical term for you, and I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) And I know you're just in your greeting your teeth right now. Why
1: why why? Uh, So, let's say a pizza maker decided he wanted to make a pizza that tastes bad, you know, he he could do that, but it would would probably not be considered great pizza. And that guy would probably not be considered a a good pizza artist. Okay,
0: but in in that example, it's obvious what the intention of the pizza is. It's to be eaten. But say someone like Picasso, and he just goes in a room. He doesn't know what he's doing. He organizes his room. So now he's like, maybe I'm an interior decorator. Oh, I just discovered cubism somehow in his room. But he doesn't know what it's for. Yeah because he doesn't know what it's for, we also don't know what it's for because the artist was just exploring and they created something. So can we judge it then? Because we don't know its purpose.
1: Well, I think that Picasso and modern art in general has has a destabilizing effect on society. And I think they meant for it to be that. So in a way, maybe they did what they did was right. I think that most modern art and contemporary art it believes in a revolutionary vision of reality that the purpose that our purpose is to is to to bring about revolutions to to destroy the, the 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 status quo to destroy the existing order and and I think that Picasso was a communist I mean he was a communist pretty much his whole life even even when it became embarrassing maybe to be so and uh, a lot of the a lot of the modern artists were either communists or fascists. You know, these the futurists were straight-on fascists. You know, they wanted to burn the old system down and set up a totalitarian, uh, you know, system of art too—a totalitarian system of art. We have artists who were totalitarian in their artistic vision. We don't—we don't tend to want to see them that way now for some reason. But, uh, but the uh, a lot of the 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 abstract artists were. The, especially the Russian abstract artists had a totalitarian vision of reality and a lot of modern designers were very totalitarian you know some some uh, modern architects would say things like you know I wish I could design the people in my house or I wish I could nail the chairs to the floor so that I could control that sounds like excess order exactly everything the way the way it is okay um, and so you have these these you have like the, this you have this, these two tendencies, let's say, in modern art. You have both. You have a kind of destructive tendency and a totalitarian tendency, which is part of the modern world. Oh, so you see
0: it as off-balance because oh, yeah. in Peter, the Petersonian point of yeah. view, which is also the Taoist point of view, there's order, chaos, and you see it as being on the extremes, and that they're not mediating between the two properly.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think the whole modern world, that's what it is. It's just a swing. Uh, it's just this this uh, pendulum swing between two two excesses. And you can see it in modern art, you can see it as well. And they become confused and they kind of fight and then they, they break each other apart. Um, but but it's a, it, it is a fascinating thing to, to see. Now we kind of just gloss over a lot of it. But if you look at the way, for example, that even post-abstract um, expressionist art Uh, let's say manifested itself it started with this freeing up you know jackson pollock throwing paint on the ground and 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 kind of this chaotic energy and everything and then it ended with color field painting where it was like just strips of one color and you couldn't do anything else like it was it was uh, completely everything was controlled in these extremely tight tight boxes of what you
0: could do i saw this painting that was just white with one speck of red you know that painting i forget it's a L'Art, it's a very famous painting.
1: Yeah, I, don't know which, I don't know which painting you're referring to. But with that, to.
0: okay, just imagine a blank canvas. Yeah, yeah, I, I can then, imagine that. And then that just I... some splotch of red in the corner. Yeah. And then it's
1: sold for millions of dollars.
0: Yeah. Is that contemporary?
1: Yeah, well, that's it. depends. It could be. Uh, it would probably be a modern, we'd probably consider it modern or late modern, you could say. Contemporary art tends to be more uh, cynical and, and will take modern conventions and be more playful about them and will create a kind of parody for example, uh, German artists like uh, Richter, who is an abstract artist, but his abstract art is considered to be a kind of parody of abstract art where it's, a, it's almost like a comment on abstract art. It's not directly abstract art. It, it looks like abstract art with a kind of, photo, kind of weird photo uh, lack of focus in it. Um, and there's a lot of neo-abstract artists who are actually... There's a kind of weird cynicism to what they're doing. But it gets very confusing. Contemporary art right now is just a giant ball of anything. Like you, it's very difficult to know. There is, is there no... post
0: postmodern, or is I it mean, just I, postmodern? I think right now? no. I
1: think that we have. I think that what I'm doing is is could be considered post postmodern. And I'm part of a group, let's say, of people who have grown up in contemporary art, who learned contemporary art, several who are who mm-hmm. had a promising contemporary art career ahead of them. You know, they had. They were in galleries. They had um, they had different uh, scholarships and everything to big schools. But then they kind of came to the end of the kind of say like they came to the end of the carnival. And at some point, the carnival has to end. You know, at some point, you've e- eaten enough pie, and you're you you know you've had enough. Uh, you had enough. Had like, enough pizza. Had enough pizza. Exactly. You had enough uh, sugar and and uh, and and blinking lights. And so, what ends up happening is a rediscovery of. What I would call traditional art, and I and I see that you see that. So, so I know several iconographers who make icons for churches who who had that exact turn where they came to the end of contemporary art and they realized this is this is just nihilism. It's just nihilism on steroids. And so they they re-embrace, let's say, the traditional language of of the church. Some people. Now
0: does that happen within a of modern okay so there's modernism there's postmodernism then there's traditionalism yeah. now does this cycle happen even within a section so there's the section of traditionalism yeah. section of modernism and postmodernism or does it happen within
1: I think the, that I does think, it think it happen
0: that happen as with the sections as a whole
1: well the problem the problem with the contemporary art world is that the very setup of the contemporary art world is is not conducive for it within that world for Let's say a return to order to happen, or a let's say a, a, a post-post modernism to happen, because you you
0: have a or return to the proper balance, balance between order and chaos. Because as you were saying, it can't just be a return to order because the fascists had extreme order. Right. So for them, it would be
1: return to the middle. Exactly. Oh. So the The problem is, that's yeah, true. In the modern, the, one of the things we forget about modernism is there is another wing of modernism which we don't tend to to. Uh, to think of, which is social realism, and social realism is has been used very much as a just pure propaganda, like just a pure propaganda tool, because its whole style, its whole affectations are basically, you know, a kind of um, sentimentality, a, a you know, a kind of uh, going in to get your sense of nationalism or your sense of of uh, of uh, of courage or whatever, and so they they tend to push you towards. Um, Towards uh, propaganda.
0: So, what people traditionally think of as propaganda is social realism. I, I mean, usually those
1: are the techniques like these that Nazi are used. propagandistic films. Yes, of course. Films. Yes, they are. And the, and the same with uh, the same with the uh, Russians. Like the Russians had a whole tradition of, of social realism. I mean, Jordan Peterson has has collected them. He his house is full of of social of Russian social realism, where the the purpose of these paintings is to make you a good citizen, right? To make you participate in. In uh, in uh, in the state,
0: do you see elements of social realism in the modern films that we have now, like Mona? I think it's called Mona. Mm-hmm. The, the one that you analyzed, Mona, Moana, Moana yeah. Yeah. and
1: then Frozen, and then Wonder Woman. Yeah. Well, right now we we don't. I would say that we're not we're not using social realism for our our propaganda anymore. The uh, because it, it's a different. It's a weird different. Um, it's a weird different world than than for example early century early. One of the things that has happened is, let's say, the revolutionary elements of our society, they, they've they actually understood symbolism. They've been the ones who, for the past, let's say, 50 years, have understood symbolism the most. And so they've actually been using, let's say, mythological structures to affect to u- to affect their propaganda, it's a very different. Type Much like of the Nazi
0: symbol being what, what, oh, yeah, what was the, sure. the, swastika the swastika was what before? Yeah, the swastika
1: was it. I mean, the swastika is one of the most ancient images, one of the most ancient symbols that exist. It's it's uh, it's an image that is universal. You can find it in all cultures. Uh, you can find it in. You can go to a church, a medieval church, and see swastikas. You can go to a Hindu temple and see swastikas. It is. It's probably one of the oldest images we have, and so they were able to 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 take it to 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 change it a little bit they made it uh instead of they making it straight the they world, slanted it the i think that it's in it, the nazis are a really good example in a way in the sense that the nazis they wanted to co-opt mythological thinking more than others they had a weird they also they had a weird uh religious feel to them right they they had a kind of strange esoteric and uh you know uh the desire to renew, to revive uh, northern gods. They also had weird contacts with, uh, with uh, Indian the, 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 uh, the uh, aristocracy in India, with the, uh, um, what are the names of the, the caste? No, I can't remember the name of the cast. Um, so, so do you think that's one of the reasons the Brahmi, why, yeah. why
0: these totalitarian regimes, when they come in, particularly on the left, so particularly communist regimes, that they want to obliterate traditional
1: art and obliterate religion and ban it? Oh, for sure. Because they understand it. Well, they, they, because they, they understand how potent it is. And also because, especially the, communists, the communist uh, groups, they really wanted to, because they, they believe that the human person is malleable, right? That we're a blank slate type. And so what they, they wanted to destroy the, all the cultural tenets which were there in order to bring about their utopia. You know the the Chinese, the Russians did it too. The Russians liquidated. They destroyed. The Russians destroyed over thirty thousand churches, just during the the early times of Stalin. Uh, and the, you know we all know that the Maoist Cultural Revolution was insane. You know they just went around destroying everything.
0: Not only destroying, but execute executing anybody that yeah. had to do with the priesthood. Yeah, and the same thing. I mean, or Buddhists. Early
1: indeed. early communist uh, Russia Russians would go around. You know, and just just to shoot priests in the head, you know, it was, it, was a, it was an insane time. So it was like liquidating the, the, uh, the imagery in order to bring about their, their utopia. But today, we, today it's weird. It's different. Our, our version of that, let's say our version of propaganda is, is a little different from that. It's more, it's more insipid and it's more, it tends to understand, like I said, it tends to be more subversive rather than directly offensive. In in the sense that it's better to instead of it's better to show like to show inversions and to 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 have stories with the notion that the inverted is becomes the n- norm in a way, and that seems to be the way to that that a lot of propaganda is happening now, um, and so it's it's a bit different, and so sometimes it's tricky because sometimes the stories actually end up looking very much like ancient traditional stories, it's often just that they're upside down or that there's a, like Shrek is a great example. Shrek is like the most, the easiest example to see where it looks like a fairy tale, but it's actually an upside down, it's a totally upside down fairy tale where you have an ogre, an ogre and a princess, you know, and the ogre is this monster and they, they present him as a monster. And so a, that would be an example of a postmodern film? Yeah, of an upside down fairy tale, of a, of a, of a, of a subversive use of traditional tropes where all the tropes are there, but they're just totally upside down. You know, the, the ogre is represented as a monster. He It suggests that he's a cannibal. It suggests all these things that the normal ogre is. And then he meets a princess, and in the end, the princess becomes an ogre. And it's like, okay... How, the Shape of Water is a great example, too, a recent, more recent version, where all the normative characters, you know, the, the Christian, the, 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 the white male, all that, they're all absolutely evil, okay? And, uh, and then all the kind of exceptional characters, like the monster, and then all these other exceptional categories are somehow pure and innocent and all of that. And then in the end, the, the, the woman becomes a, becomes a monster. Mm. Like, that's how it ends she goes into the water, she becomes a sea monster. Yeah. And it's like, we're so used to it, we think that somehow that that's a normal way for a story to go, but it's very disturbing, mm-hmm. you know. A normal story... I've sto- seen that so much in the past 15 years. Yeah, and a normal story, like the story of the frog and the princess, for example, is that the exceptional character, the frog, this talking frog, who's a monster, is by some proof of their virtue integrated into the world. Right? When Little
0: mermaid becomes a human...
1: Yeah, well, that's a difficult. Or that's Ponyo a more...
0: becomes a human.
1: Yeah, Panyo is a yeah. That's a, that's a good that's a good example. Of you know Ponyo
0: Miyazaki. A... I've, I've been watching Miyazaki yeah. films because you commented on Spirited Away* and I wanted to watch it again. So I started watching a few, and I was trying to put my finger on why is it so? It's it's damn good. His films are yeah. very good, and I realized not only is, are they magical and whimsical, like a child and a, and imaginative, but there's. A complete lack of cynicism, yeah. A complete oh, sure. lack of sarcasm, yeah. sarcasm mm-hmm. or or sardonic commentary. Yeah,
1: no. That I think you really put your finger on it, and I think that because we're in a situation because of our because of technology and because of our extremely ordered societies where we have a you know everything is controlled by the state, basically, Not everything, but so much of our world is controlled by the state and by these giant corporations and everything. We have a need for feminine symbolism. We have a need for the private sphere. We have a need for the refreshing aspect of of our personal relationships. All this feminine symbolism, we have a desire and a need for it. And the thing about Miyazaki is that almost all his films take on this feminine symbolism, but he does it in such a beautiful way where he doesn't feel the need to be Subversive, or to kind of show how you know the male character is an idiot, or or or, or yeah, there's or useless. There's,
0: there's a complete absence or lack of a political message. Oh yeah, no, I think the so closest too. May be Ponyo where he says the humans are ruining the earth right. with their ships. That's the closest yeah. that I found so far.
1: But I, I agree. I agree that that's what makes him so strong, and that's why. And they make him so strong also because he's able to create strong female characters, but in a manner which is not. Doesn't it doesn't have that kind of anger and bitterness and cynicism in it, or it's more like a celebration of of these beautiful feminine characters? Yeah, and
0: it doesn't make the feminine the masculine. Exactly, it doesn't put a, make a girl have m- traditionally masculine qualities, yeah. and then say we're subverting notions of gender.
1: Yeah, because that's what I mean. That's what so many of the su- the like the superhero movies that we've seen recently, and a lot of the like the Star Wars movies and everything is. And I think that's why people are are, are kind of annoyed with them is because they're. It's not only the desire to make, let's say, a feminine, a female character into the same action hero that we've had, you know, since the 1980s that everybody's criticized. It's like it's, you know, it's the feminists or you know the, the postmodern criticize that figure of the of this, of the hero of the male hero. And so, but now you want to make a woman into it. Masculinity then, is toxic as long as it's a male. Exactly. It's like masculinity becomes good if it's a female who embodies it. It's it's just completely, it's completely upside down. I and mean, then here's what else, destroyed. what else
0: is, I find funny about that. Then femini, femininity is just unattractive when it's attached to a male. So as a male, you can't win.
1: No. <laughs> it's you're, very difficult if you're to
0: if you're a masculine so but if you're attractive and you're toxic ma- and you have toxic masculinity you can get away with almost anything yeah, right. we had had this conversation with Janice Fiamengo that the people who are getting who are getting sent letters saying stop what you're doing is are they tend to be people who are unattractive yeah. males yeah exactly that if you were an attractive male then the woman wouldn't find it catcalling she would
1: find it no I, I totally agree who's that who's the British comedian flattering. there that Jordan did uh, an interview with I forget his name the
0: Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories.
1: This one British comedian, he's like- Milo? No, no, no. He's he. Jordan Jordan did a, th- a thing. He was like he was like a huge deal, and he he came to press and everything. He did an interview with Sam Harris, and he did an interview with Jordan. He, he's kind of on board with the intellectual dark work. Anyways, he was like a he was this super good looking guy, and he was extremely promiscuous, you know, and, and just had loads and loads of sex with all kinds of women. And I saw him. Oh, Russell Brand. Yeah, Russell Brand. Man. I saw him once meet with a woman, talking to her, and he reached back behind her back, and he undid her bra like that and oh and everybody was laughing and she was laughing and she's like oh what did you do it's so funny ha ha and like really interesting you know imagine if anybody else had done that you know what it would have been and i'm just i mean i I've, I'm, I'm figuring like maybe russell rand at some point they're going to turn on him when he kind of when he loses his his attractive edge they might turn on him at some point but uh yeah no i agree that it's mostly that that the certain behaviors uh let's say trying to trying to be flirty with a woman if you're good looking and you're into your desirable, then that's not a problem, but if you're ugly.
0: Razor blades are like diving boards, Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Let's get to Lord of the Rings. All right, Lord of the Rings. I want you to tell me the story of not don't tell me the story. It's gonna yeah. take hours and hours. Tell me the symbolism behind the ring.
1: Well, the ring, the ring is really power. I mean it's called the ring of power. Uh but I think that the ring is, is p- the power in the sense that we understand it today, in the, in the sense of technological power. That is the capacity to affect the world. right? So it could be political as well. But a good way to understand it is, is technological power in the sense that it's, it's, a, it's the, the, the capacity to control, to affect uh, things around you. And so the ring itself... This symbol of metallurgy is a is a very ancient symbol of exactly that, right? In the Bible, you have this notion that as the fall of man kind of increases, moving towards the flood, one of the steps is the creation of of, me, of metallurgy with Tubal Cain and the forging of weapons. <clears throat> but that is it's there in other traditions as well. In other, somebody was telling me a, a Nordic tradition about almost the same idea that the and in Greek in Greek uh, thinking, you know. Uh, Hephaestus, the god of uh, metallurgy, is a—he's a—he's kind of like a monstrous, deformed god who, who was kicked out of uh, the the the, the Olympi- of uh, Olympus and lives in a kind of dark, fiery place, and that's where he makes his. And so it's like this—it's kind of like an image of the capacity on the margin to, to, uh, to control the, the 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 outside, you could say, something like that. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're saying how the the ring becoming something that
1: makes you invisible makes sense
0: because
1: right. Well, the the idea is that you have to understand it. You have to understand technology, or if you have to understand power or capacity to move out into the margin, you have to understand it as adding layers to yourself. Right. Uh, that's that's a good way to understand technology. You could un- add the supplement. So you supplement your existence. With something so you know you wear clothes you add a layer of clothes because and then you can live further out right you used to be only to live on the equator now you can live further out from the equator because you have clothes and you can keep warm then you develop houses you develop develop different technologies to, to bolster your capacity to live further out so imagine now the same thing in terms of political power you're one person what can you do you can't do much so you, you 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 in becoming in adding power to yourself. Let's say you you hire an army, you hire you get weapons, you uh, put on an armor, you do all these things. You learn to ride a horse. You, you have all these things that you add to yourself in order to make yourself more powerful, right? And the ultimate example of that is the ornament. So we we often don't think what a metaphysically what an ornament is but it, an ornament is something that you add to another thing to make it just to make it different just to make it special right because it has no purpose if i if i put a if i paint a flower on a chair it doesn't participate in the chair nature of the chair It doesn't help me sit on it, it doesn't, that's what you know it, all it does is it makes it different from others and it's the same for people so so uh, a woman will wear jewelry a man will wear Will, will, will wear jewelry as well, a woman will w- wear makeup in order to, to, to uh, supplement her beauty, you could say. So a woman wears media to supplement her beauty, but what happens is as the supplement gets stronger and stronger, you, the question is, are you supplementing to show, right, to, to, to call attention to, or are you supplementing in order to hide the true nature of what it is that you're supplementing, right? and it, it, it's hard to know when that happens right it's hard to know when i take a hammer in order to be able to hit nails and and, and hit them in but then at some point the, weapon, the the technology becomes so big that it it i could never do it like it, it's actually there to mask my incapacity to 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 do what it, that that actual action and the same with with makeup you know you everybody has seen a woman who at some point in the, her life, as she enters her fifties or sixties, she doesn't re- she doesn't realize what's going on, and then she starts to wear too much makeup, and then you realize that it's actually there to hide her her age. It's not there to to enhance to ins- accentuate exactly. Okay, and so that's how the ornament makes you invisible. Is you you disappear behind the supplement at some point. So if you if you keep adding those layers, at some point those layers are all that is it's like a i see i
0: see so okay so of an empty shell so there's technology i'm just gonna yeah. s- see if i understand it. so there's technology and you use that technology to expand what you can do to expand your dominion mm. over the world and over others yeah then you can also think of it in terms of makeup as a technology buying a big car to Make, signal exactly. your attractiveness is a technology in the sense because it's a tool yeah. so tool is another word for technology
1: Right, and the, the big car is a great, is the great example, right? The, I mean, for a man, that's a, that's a, that's a, it's a joke that we have, right? The guy with the, with the sp- sports car, you know, is it there to, is it there to uh, actually hide something about him, something that he's missing, some, some aspect of him which is deficient? And then he's hiding himself behind his big car. He's actually hiding the fact that he's, I mean, this is the, like the joke, right? He's hiding himself, the fact that he's somehow deficient in some spheres of his love life, with this big car, so he's overcompensating in that manner, and so that's a way for him to hide. He's he's hiding himself behind this this ring. This how does ornament. it
0: work when it comes to armies? Like, let's say you're the president of the United States, and you just keep you keep pumping money into the military, so you're expanding your range of dominion. Yeah, how does that
1: relate to hiding? Um, mm, let's try to understand it in terms of in terms of an army,
0: because um, I understand it in terms of masking when it comes to something like makeup. Or the man with the car, yeah. or someone with extremely well, someone who's extremely well dressed, but to the point
1: of not being well, yeah. being overly dressed. Well, I would say, I would say, we could see some examples. I think, in terms of when is it that, uh, let's say, civilizations become expansive. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people could argue with me on on this. For sure, okay, <laughs> but I think that if you look at the the uh, the expansion of the Roman Empire, for example, the question is why did it expand? Like why why would it expand? And one of the answers could be exactly what I said. It could be exactly that it is lacking within itself what it needs to exist, and so it has to it has to eat has to speed up how what's, what it's eating on the outside, it has to kind of devour the outside and add, 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 add to a point where it always feels like it, it, it's it's, um, it's pushing away that moment where it's going to break apart by doing that because it's, there's something in the center which is lacking, there's some, there's some inner thing which is lacking. And you see that, I mean, I think that we see that, in, you could think about it in terms of materialism, how people will start to buy, buy, buy things because there's something lacking within themselves, and so they do that in a way to make them feel like they're, like they're still uh, growing. Okay. okay. Right? So they
0: lack something crucial that will yeah. help them survive, and so they stave off the inevitable by increasing their imperialistic powers. This is this something that the communists did?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that that's a good way to understand it in terms of 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 empires that tend to. Oh, okay, I mean, that's expand. one example. Because
0: yeah. others could just simply be greed.
1: Yeah, but I think that greed is that greed is that too. I think that. This, this, ah that's true because yeah.
0: greed could also be tied to an
1: insecurity of which course. means you don't have something that's right and, and so that's why the ring is related to our desires uh, th- this periphery this idea of supplement is also related to what the Christians would call the passions so you have these you have these things that pull you from the outside desires you know uh, gluttony uh, pride uh, sexual desire all these things and so if if you move in that direction Usually, that's what it is. You're devour You're eating. You're you're taking in things. You're you're acting in certain ways in order to compensate for something that you're lacking interior, in, interiorly. You know, and everybody knows someone who does that. I mean, you can take extreme cases of someone, let's say, who drinks. You know, and you know, and you know, someone who who becomes an alcoholic. He doesn't just become an alcoholic because of alcohol, right? Usually, you become an alcoholic. You 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 drink to fill up some malaise that you have, some kind of and everybody has that malaise, you know, we, we just we have different ways of dealing with it. But you, you, can, you engage in certain uh, supplementary behaviors in order to... And the supplement... Because the supplement is also medicine. That's also important in understanding this idea of supplement. Is, uh, it also has to do with, with, with the notion of taking in something or intoxicants or medicine. All of that is part of this notion of the supplement. Because when you're sick, you have to take something from the outside in order to heal you and it works like it it can work you know and the supplement is not there's nothing wrong about the supplement there's nothing wrong about this process it's just that it can become out of control you know because you need to eat and and there's nothing wrong with with sexual activity all those things are fine it's just that if you fall you can fall into a a um you can fall into a pattern where that behavior or that 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 desire or or you know the the alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, or power or all the things that we do or buying cars or you know whatever it is that we do to supplement our existence takes you away from yourself and then you lose yourself in that you you know you lose yourself in your in your desires and you you, you cease to you've lost the heart like you've lost the memory of the heart, you could call it. How does this relate to the ring becoming heavier? Well I think that the ring becomes heavier as if you understand it as, Let's say Frodo is moving out into that chaotic world. And so it has to become heavier in a certain way. Just like you need to add more and more layers the further away you get from yourself. So it's, it's going to be, you know, it's like you have, need a bigger, a bigger gun, a bigger sword, a bigger, you know, a bigger army, a bigger house, a, you know, a, more technology. You, if you, going out into space is the ultimate example, you know. It's like you go out into space, you need a massive shell around you, a massive, massive shell to protect you from the outside, because the outside will kill you. Um, and, I, and I think that that's, what, that's what's happening in The Lord of the Rings, is that as Frodo is moving away from his home, as he's moving away from his family, his identity, and all of that, and he's moving out towards this, this dark place, then his, the ring gets heavier, and it takes a toll on him. You know, At first, he has a, enough innocence to to bear the ring without being completely taken over, but as he moves out and further and further and further out, then it starts to, to eat away at him, you know. And the only character in Lord of the Rings who can handle the ring without a problem is is Tom Bombadil, and that's because he is a representation of that natural, kind of innocence, that kind of boisterous uh, self, fullness of being. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't. He he's a he's a he has a kind of joyful innocence that means that he's not tempted by the the, 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 uh, the periphery or tempted by that. A good example is in the movie Spirited Away. It's a great example where the, the central character what is her name again? forget her name. Anyways. The, the, Sen, but
0: that was what she was given. Yeah. Well, Sen, yeah.
1: She, she herself has that innocence. And so when, when she's, she's not in danger the same way that others are in that world of uh, gold and of pleasures and of uh, you know this 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 uh, this house of of uh, kind of sensuality, she's not she's not in danger. So when the when the monster when No Face presents her with the gold, she's like, huh. but she'll take it if she needs it, right? And it's fine. She's like, oh, she needs she needs the she needs something from No Face. She'll she'll take it. She's fine. But then he's like, no, I want to give you more. I want you to give me more, and she's like, "Why would I want more? I, I'm fine. I I needed this tool to do this, and I did it, and then I'm done." And that was because she was innocent. I think it's because she has she had a, a kind of innocence in the right way to see innocence, a kind of purity, you could say, a a, a kind of lack of uh, self. I'd say a, a a a joyful purity. I would. I don't know how else to to, to say it. Yeah.
0: We were talking about the Little Mermaid before. We started filming, and I don't know if you had much time to think about it before we started filming, but can you comment on how The Little Mermaid has a connection to today?
1: Right. Um, well, especially if, if you're talking about the movie, The Little Mermaid, like the the Disney movie, um, I think it's, it's interesting because The Little Mermaid, she... It's funny because... I'd, maybe I need to make a caveat about, about The Little Mermaid. The first Little Mermaid, like the one that was written by Hans Christian Andersen, was really about the incapacity to cross over. It was, it was, it was really about the... Be happy with what you are. Um, because she, she dies, right? She can't. She can't cross over into the human world because that's not her place, right? And so <laughs> the Disney version is the actual total opposite. The Disney version is the very opposite. It is the, it is the modern, like you can be whatever you want uh, version of that. Uh, so it's very it's kind of interesting, to, first of all, to think about the difference between the two worlds, the worlds of Hans Christian Andersen and, and our world today, where we have this idea that you can pretty much just do whatever you want. Um, but it, what's interesting in, in the, 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 the scene with the, the, the witch, what's her name again? Ursula. Ursula. Uh, yeah, what is interesting in that scene is that Ursula is making her feel like she cares about her, right? Making her feel like she's this poor, this poor thing, this poor victim of her circumstance, this poor... Uh, and she's like, I'm going to... I can offer you what you want. I can offer you your desire, but what you have to give me is is your voice, is your self, basically. Um, and so in a way... Your logos. Yeah, exactly, your logos. And so in a way, it is it is an image of, of this problem of desire in that sense And the, the problem with that movie is that in the end she gets her thing that's the problem it's a, it's like it's that's a bit of that's a, that's more complicated but it, but but uh, but she she's like you need to sacrifice yourself your logos in order to get what you desire you know and that's that is part of this notion of the supplement in a sense is that you you if you if you desire this new car, that's what you really desire. If you if you desire to to have all these sexual experiences, if you desire to have a certain lifestyle, and that's like... That's, when you think that that's what you are, that's when you lose your logo. God,
0: that's interesting because you can look at it from two points of view. Yeah. One is Ursula, which you can think of as the radical left enticing right. people with, with wish fulfillment. I just want your voice. Mm. But then on the other side, there's the people who are willing to give up their voice.
1: Yeah. Who are willing to to give up their 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 logo so their their core their heart or whatever in order to get something that they desire in order to get something that they want and i think that that's you know and there's something about that in the ring too there's something about that in the notion of the ring in general where you know the person who is going to bear the ring especially someone who who already has a purpose that that they're they're going to be able to accomplish what they want like if they have that power they'll be able to do that but they kind of have to give up have to kind of give up their soul to to get it and it, it's a magical all the magical transactions in stories are always kind of like that it's like you know you you get what you want but you have to give up something more profound in order to, to get that and we and i think that you see it you see people who go through that all the time people go through that all the time right they they the, the guy who who all he wants is to get his million dollars and then he sacrifices his family, he sacrifices his relationship with his wife, he sacrifices the things that are actually very precious, that are really precious because they constitute your your being in terms of a, of a communal being, uh, and they do that to get what they want. And I think that in terms of the radical left, one of the problems that we're seeing is that the radical left has been able to convince people that they're only this one aspect of what they want. And so someone is like, I... You know, I feel like I'm, you know, that I either I'm a, I'm just one thing, like I'm this one thing. And if I embrace this one aspect of myself, I will get power, like I'll get some political power. Uh, and I think that that's that's dangerous in terms of just normal people like as a, we're not like I am not just a a, a, you know I'm not just a man I'm not just a, a carver I'm not just a or if I, was a, if I was gay I'm not just gay I'm not just trans I'm not just whatever and I'm not just a European I'm not, so it's like if you embrace this one aspect of yourself then all of a sudden it's like but it, th- th- there's something that's how you make a weapon right a we- that's what a weapon is a weapon is a point it's like I'm going to push something into a point then I'm going to use it as a weapon and that's how you make a weapon, but that's not the way you make a, a person, right? You don't make a person by turning a person into, into a weapon or weaponizing, you know, something about yourself because you lose yourself into, that, into in that, in that weapon, you could say. And you can do it with all kinds of things, right? You can, you can you could turn your bitterness into that. You can become your bitterness. You can become your bitterness at your parents. You know, you hate your parents because of what they did. And your whole life falls into that bitterness. And you make this nice, jagged, pointy thing where you, all you exist in is this one thing about you, which is the way your parents treated you. And you, 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 you dive into that. It becomes your, your spear. And you, you start slashing at the world with it. And it makes you feel powerful because it works. It actually does give you power. But you lose something in, 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 the, in the balance. You lose the capacity to become a full person, a total being. Mm. I just had a thought
0: about about giving up what you have in order to get what you want, which is Ariel. Mm. But nihilists in today's world give up what they want in order to keep what they have. So they don't want, they'll give up their aspirations, like, forget about marriage, mm. even though they actually want it. Forget about, forget about traditional values, even though they actually want friends and they would like maybe a nuclear family or yeah. whatever it may be, in order to retain their world view, what they have.
1: But I think it, it has to do also with a a kind of a shortening of what nihilism tends to do is it tends to shorten the the horizon, you could say. And so, the most immediate things we have are these desires, right? Those are the most immediate. The idea of a, wanting a family, you have to you have to like swim over that first wave, which is I just want to have a beer, right? You have to swim over that in order to to get to something which is more purposeful. And so, I think that what nihilism does is it it opens up the possibility of just living in more immediate desires. Uh, you know, playing video games all day or whatever it is that you want to do in the immediate uh, and not feel like you have to, to, to direct yourself towards something which is higher. Um, and so in that sense, I think that that's what, that's what nihilism tends to do to people.
0: So what do the hostile brothers, Cain and Abel, there are others which I can't think of right now, but what do they have to tell us about our current situation with regards to the radical left or even the alt right?
1: Yeah, well, I think in terms of, I think in terms of Cain and Abel, I really do. I do think that Jordan Peterson has hit the nail in the right place in terms of that story and how it relates to today, in the sense of resentment. And I think that in the story of Cain and Abel, especially, you see uh, Cain who feels like he should have more than what he has and it's not just and so it becomes the basic you could say that it's pride right pride is the is the first sin it's the first sin in pretty much all the whole biblical story you know the devil sin is pride cain's sin is pride adam and eve's sin is pride as well it's it's the feeling that i deserve more than what what I should have,
0: and it's always relative to someone else because it's not. Right. It it's almost equivalent to I should have more, but also you shouldn't have that. If I don't have that, you shouldn't have that. Oh yeah, for
1: sure. No, I totally agree, and I think that that's. It seems to be. I think that that's that's for sure. If you talk to people who, are far on the left, uh, far on the left, you could say, you. It doesn't take a long time to scratch, at the fact that what frustrates them is not so much that they're poor because most of the time at least here they're not you know, not you know there's very few people starving in Canada I mean I'm sure there are, but there' are very few um, It's usually that they're annoyed to think of Jeff Bezos in his you know his huge house and that's what that's what annoys them um, and I think that I mean I, I'm not saying that there isn't something to say for the problem of disparity and the problem of people of one person having too much power i think that that's something which is important to think about and to talk about where where certain individuals have so much power that they be actually can become a danger to social cohesion but but i think that if it's if you look at it out of resentment in the sense like you know why why would he why is, why does he why would he get that and why, why not me? You know, it's not fair. That kind of thinking. I think that doesn't lead the person in a, in a good situation. Um, and, and we see it in the story of Cain, of course, is where he ends up killing his brother because, because he, and, and in the story of Cain, what's interesting in that story is that it doesn't tell you, it doesn't tell you why. It's really, it's really fascinating because later traditions have always tried to like, to try to guess why why is it that Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable to God? But in the story itself, it doesn't say. It just says, Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable, Abel's sacrifice was acceptable. It's like, okay, you don't even know why. And so, but it doesn't matter. It's like, that's reality, right? It, it, another way to see it is, this is these are the cards that have been dealt you. This is it. You can't argue with reality. And so, are you going to argue with reality? Are you going to say, I should have more, and, and I'm going to want more so much, and I'm willing to blow the whole thing up just because I don't have what I want you know and and I think that what you what you're seeing in the especially in the in the in the radical left is you definitely see that type of that type of thinking and you see it too like like you said, you do see it now in the extreme right you're seeing similar things as well where there there is a nihilism which is propping up in the more extreme right which is you know basically, our culture, Western culture, is is over, so let's just participate in, in blowing it up. Like let's just let's just run it into the ground, you know. So no one can have it. Uh, so there's a little bit of that going on, and it's very disturbing to watch. So, yeah. Something that
0: I I always struggle with is the radical left end side. There is a there is a, there is a grain of truth, more than a grain of truth, which is that. We don't all have what we want, which we'll never all have what we want. But there's some basic needs. So in, in Canada, we all have health care. So let's just forget it. But let's say in the States. Mm. So they don't all have health care. They don't all have... They all are... Many people are living paycheck to paycheck. And then they look at someone like Jeff Bezos and they say, it's not fair that someone should be living so insouciantly and free mm. while I am just struggling. Yeah. Okay, so there is something to be said about not having to struggle this much for basic necessities. Yeah. Then at the same time, there is something to be said of, well, are you trying to be a champion for the cause of people who are struggling or are you just trying to tear down those who have much more than you? Now, there is, something, there is also something to be said for, again, tearing down those who have disproportionately too much simply because we don't want power to accumulate in the hands of the few and in crony capitalism, capitalism Obviously, money translates into politics, mm. and we don't want that. So, it's there's I see both sides, and I'm always struggling because I see the benevolent side of the radical left, yeah. which is riches, is, which is the benevolent side of the left in general. Yeah, and then obviously, the benevolent side of the right comes out as well, which is well, we need hierarchies, you can't just dispense with all hierarchies. Mm-hmm.
1: What for what did you what is it that you struggle with? You struggle with so. I think that the left, the left... Because any
0: attempt to criticize the radical left, they can just say, no, it's not this claim of resentment. It's that, all that nice, bonamy, gracious, altruistic, philanthropic aspect, all those, all those elements that you just listed, that's, that's actually our true motivation. Yeah. And it's difficult. Well, you can look, you can take the psychoanalytical approach, which is something I'm going to try to do in the documentary, which is, Mm -hmm. well, what do your behaviors show? Forget about what you say. Yeah. Let's see how you act. So are you killing tens of millions of people And the, in the 1900s, well, obviously they didn't. But I'm saying no. you, the same philosophy right. has. And are you clapping when Jordan Peterson is debating Slavoj Zizek, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Jordan Peterson references bloody, violent revolution, and then the rest, and then the radical left says, "Yeah," which happened. I don't know if you saw. Well, that. I saw. I saw the one and scene just, where
1: he says he says hierarchies are not. He says hierarchies are not all posited on. On violence and dispossessing and everything, and then someone laughs, and I thought his his answer was so perfect. And he said, he said, well, maybe those that laugh, that's the way they would do it. And I thought, wow, Mm -hmm. George, (laughs) there's another gold moment.
0: There was another time where he just mentioned what would happen is bloody, violent revolution, and then the uh, yeah people cheered and they just kind of taken aback. Yeah, he didn't know what to say.
1: Well, yeah, how would you know to say to that? Because I mean, I think and those
0: people have never experienced anything close to bloody, violent revolution. (laughs) Like I was so for this documentary, I started looking at clips of just, just, just the worst, some of the worst of what humans can do to other humans on a large scale, mm-hmm. and and it just it just tears you apart, man. Like yeah. s- some of them are not that visceral because there's black and white footage with no sound. Yeah, there's still, and then some are like the what the Tamil tigers, what the. Singalese government did to the Tamil Tigers, and then you see mothers holding their children, and their children are just screaming because there's bombs being dropped on them ahead, and they don't know if they're going to... And they die. And and it's just fear and fear and fear breaks your heart, and that's what a violent revolution is like.
1: Yeah. No, I think that... I think especially now, you know, it's, it's so... I think that's what's difficult, is that, you know, you can imagine that someone... In the 19th century, just coming out of very difficult, like let's say different, very difficult times in Russia, where you're peasant, you're barely eating, you you don't get to eat any meat. All the aristocrats eat meat, you know, like that kind of life, where it's very, it's very difficult. And then that you would feel so desperate that you would be willing to, to risk everything, you know, just to topple the whole thing. Uh, Compared to now, which is I mean, who are these people like who want bloody revolution in our in our country? The and top one percent of
0: anybody who's ever lived, right?
1: And I, I so I don't understand like I don't I don't totally understand how that. And I also don't understand
0: this, how they define what rich is because rich to me, always seems to be defined by them as whoever is richer than me.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, no, I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, uh, so, so, what other ancient st- stories have you read? Yeah.
0: That apply to this modern time, this <laughs> radical left, alt right, crazy world that
1: we live in. Um, I was thinking about that, and I and, and I don't and I don't, I don't totally see. In terms of, we seem to be in a very unique moment. That, because one of the things that's happening right now, which is which is extremely unique, is that we have these two excesses that are growing up at the same time. And I think that that's the one thing that people find very difficult to see because they tend to just see the other excess, right? And so, for example, we we live in a world where there's more control and more calculation of what you're doing than any other time in the history of the world, right? Google has everything about you, right? You exist virtually in Google's... Uh, on go- some Google Drive there they know everything about you um, know everything you said everything you've thought pr- pretty much they was. can clone you from your they, emails. They could basically clone you from your email and your your behavior because it's not just your email it's your behavior online what you click here which they, they have these gigantic algorithms which calculate and they know like where you are what you're interested in you know there are crazy stories of people who who uh, you know like a, with a, a girl who is looking online for certain things, not related to pregnancy but they've calculated that if you look online for certain things even if it's not directly related to pregnancy it probably means you're pregnant and so they'll show you ads for pregnancy stuff right so there's this massive uh data control over what we are and just in terms of laws like the the modern state no i can't i can't build something in my yard i need to get permission from my town to build anything i want like i can't right now we're in the process in Quebec where the government wants to, we're homeschooling our kids, and the government wants to to force us to take standardized tests. And they think that's normal. Like, I think it's normal that the government decides what your kids are going to learn. We, we think that's normal. We think that the government has that possibility. So we have the most, but we also have this weird, carnivalesque, crazy world of passions where, you know, pornography is rampant, where people are... are People are dying from from, uh, from opioids. And so there's also this other weird world that's completely chaotic and upside down. So we have these two things that are kind of growing up at the same time. And so it's almost like this is a very unique moment in history where the capacity for absolute control and the capacity for absolute breakdown seem to be looking at each other and somehow feeding into each other. So it's, it's very weird. I don't know if there's a. There sto- any, are there any biblical stories? My brother would probably be better at finding at finding a story that shows as much the two extremes at the same time. Um, I mean, it's possible that maybe the closest thing we have would be the 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 collapse of of the Roman Empire, maybe, like like the collapse of of uh, the the. the the first collapse, let's say third third century collapse where it's as if there was this huge, gigantic bureaucratic state, crazy, but then this, de- these decadent elites that were all they cared about were their orgies. And then it's like, it just couldn't, couldn't hold. And so it's like it, it collapsed into civil war. So it seems like maybe that's the closest thing that we have to understanding kind of where we, like the symptoms of our society seems to be, seem to be close to, let's say the, the, that first fall there in the, in the, in the second, well, one third One reason I'm
0: asking is because there's so much wisdom in these old stories. And if we want to, if we want to engineer a solution to our current times, it's always good to look back and see, well, what did they do then?
1: Yeah. You know, I don't think there's a solution to our current time. I, I I, wish, I I wish, and a lot of people, you know, and I think that that's one of the reasons why I kind of took on Jordan's way of seeing things in terms of the solution a lot of people have criticized me just for, for kind of coming too close to Jordan as a Christian. And a lot of people have criticized Hear that sound?
0: Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories.
1: Jordan for his, his individualism, you could say. And I've been thinking about it a lot recently. And I think that, I think that Jordan's solution is the only one right now. Not individualism in the sense of... Not the Ayn Rand Right, exactly. Indiv- not the Ayn Rand kind of selfish individual, but the notion that the in a world that is so extreme right now and the systems are so big you know the only thing you can do is is become a saint right as much as possible is to become a just in the world to be to be a, an anchor for for people around you and so and that means changing yourself that means uh, and i think it is in line with the deepest Christian teaching, which is, you know, take take the the beam out of your own eye before before removing the straw out of your brother's eye, and I, and there's also several citations of saints. For example, Saint Seraphim of Sarov, who said, um, "Acquire the spirit of peace, and thousands around you will be saved." And so this notion of becoming something rather than trying to 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 immediately want to to find these gigantic solutions to the problem because i don't i think i think i think we're headed for trouble and i think that the only the only hope is that there will be enough bastions of civility and and justice and and truth to to carry us through right to carry us through the 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 chaos because i I, to be honest i don't see i don't see us fixing this the the the, these massive problems they're too big they're so big it's like it's like the AI thing you know you have all these people saying be careful about AI be careful about AI but the no one's gonna stop it's just this this machine is turning and turning and speeding up and we're, we're heading towards it everybody knows we're heading towards it everybody's afraid everybody knows how dangerous it could be but no one can stop it you know Elon Musk can't stop it no one can stop it it's gonna happen and so I don't know you know I don't I, I, sorry to be a pessimist
0: <laughs> mm. So where do you see it going? You just see it remaining, and then we strengthen ourselves as individuals, becoming a a person that someone can rely on, an anchor.
1: No, I, I think that no, I think that it has to. I do think that it has to build ground up, that for sure. And I think that we need we need to rediscover our center, our heart. Like we need to rediscover that, and then we also need to participate in actual communities. And that's one of the reasons why I, I tell people that... Oh, wait, you mean to say, to say that it, you don't see it
0: going away, the problem of the extreme right and extreme left, with some large-scale solution. You see it as a problem that will be solved from a, bo- a bottom-up approach as you...
1: They can only be. I think it can only be solved by a bottom-up approach. It's the same problem with, with the ecological problem. The ecological problem is too big because it's based in people's desires the the problem the ecological problem is based on our desire to accumulate and to to have to have to supplement our existence to that extent so the problem is so profound that no matter what no matter what recycling you set up it's not going to go away it's not going to go away the only thing that can make it go away is for transformed people and transformed communities but we don't like communities they don't exist anymore we don't have at least some, some do, but it's, it's very difficult. This
0: is why John Vervacki dates the current meaning crisis. He's, he says, well, he might say, because <laughs> he's a complicated man, yeah. he might say that the extreme radical left, extreme, extreme alt-right are symptoms of a deeper meaning crisis, and this meaning crisis dates back to the year 1200.
1: Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. I, when he said 12th century, I was like, John, you've got it. That's, that's where it started. That's where all the, the, the West started to, to vacillate, let's say, between extremes and uh and so it's it's a it's a cyclical thing it's a story that's too big for us it's too big for individuals to think that they're going to change it but there are ways to exist in those times of breakdown like there are ways to exist which alleviate let's say or make you not be a an actor in the breakdown and henceforth not be an actor in your own breakdown not not fall and 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 live a life a dissolute life of of the passions and be completely taken up by your desires and then wake up on your deathbed and it's like okay i have a big house and a big car but i'm divorced and my kids hate me and it's like that's okay congratulations you know what did you accomplish and so one of the reasons why i've insisted a lot of people sometimes they, they wonder why i i insist on it so much is one of the reasons why i keep saying that at least in the west we need we need to remember the Christian story. Like we need to remember the fact what it is that made us something.
0: Yeah, remember also means understanding.
1: Yeah. And part- I think it, it it means to a certain extent participate in too. And so that's why I that's think That's a Vervakian idea. Yeah. But I think we don't we, we don't fall in the same place because so John's way of of participation is very individualistic. And so he says, "I'm a practitioner. I practice this. I practice that. You know, I I, I practice these different mystical uh, practices, and it's like for him, it's a way out of the meaning crisis. But it has to it has to come together too. We have to remember that even in Buddhist, in in Buddhist teaching, that you know, Say there's a lack of community in John's approach. I think so. I think so. And I, I think the lack of community is." We don't we don't totally decide what story we're part of I, I keep telling people that people, it's difficult for people to fully understand it my the way that I, I view how things are going on is I think I, what we're seeing is a playing out of in the West you know we're seeing a playing out of the Christian story the massive Christian story and part of that story is a breakdown it's there in the story you know that's why
0: yeah you're the only person that I've seen articulate our current crisis in this manner that, Christianity itself might have to die in order for it to come back and be yeah. reborn,
1: but I think it's it's there in the story. Like it's there, it's there. In that's the... interesting because you're applying the narrative to the narrative. Yeah, that's how symbolism works. So symbolism is a is a, you know, it, it's a Im- embedded structures within themselves, right? It, it's a uh...
0: that the archetype is so true that it applies to the archetype.
1: Well, that it's a, it's like a, yes, exactly. It, it, that's a, that's also that's what religious stories do in general. Like they are they con- they understand how they understand a form of self consciousness. They have a form of self consciousness where, they, they, they try to look at themselves as well. There's a, a, weird circularity that's part of the of the symbolic structure. Yeah, I find that I find that fascinating. I need to think about
0: that some more because it's an interesting idea. I haven't heard someone else express it, at least not articulate in the in the direct manner that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you start to come to view stories? in this symbolic fashion so you're saying you're 22 or you just graduated <coughs> from college and your teacher was telling you you don't belong here yes. you're a traditionalist the questions you're asking are are not the ones that you'll find the answer to not in college
1: yeah well so what, what what basically happened is I I tried to make contemporary art for a little while I had a studio with some friends, and you know, I was kind of working towards something, and then
0: just for freelance, just for some money.
1: Well, I, I hope, like a real artist, like go into a gallery and do, a, do do the do the real artist thing, you know. I made these giant, you know, kind of really ego uh, ego driven giant giant uh, works of art. You know, my whole work. life is
0: just one big giant ego driven work of art.
1: <laughs> so anyway, so, so that's what I had, and then I, I uh, I got married, and ma- marriage really kind of slammed me against myself. like, like I saw all my own.
0: Flaws, flaws, insecurities, and,
1: insecurities, and passions, and, and uh, unreasonableness, and all that just kind of came flying back. Can you
0: me. explain how that happens? Because I recently got married, and okay. so I want to know. I want to know, know, know what's in store for well, me. It depends
1: on people. Some people, some people get married, and, and then it's wonderful for a little while, and then it then then the mirror starts to, to show. Um, for me, it was the opposite. Like we got married, like a week after we got married, all of a sudden it was like could just see both of us could just see. So our first year of marriage was hell. Like it was, it was. Oh, it was the opposite was, of most people. Oh yeah, it was absolute hell. Like we, once we got through the first year of marriage, we were like, "Huh, can never get worse than that." So it was pretty good. Let's keep going. <laughs> and so, so I mean, it depends on people. That's how it was for us.
0: Did and you live together beforehand?
1: No. No. Um, and so, so it was like the, just seeing this mirror, and so it led me to a lot of questioning and. And, uh, and also just kind of spiritual crisis in general. I was also becoming very disillusioned with the world, the kind of the evangelical world that I was in. In college, I'd read a lot of, of authors, a lot of philosophers. And I just felt like the church where I was going wasn't, wasn't answering the, the questions. What kind of church was it? It was kind of a Baptist, Baptist, evangelical Baptist church. Kind of American style church there. Uh, not liturgical, you know, just very kind of looks like a business meeting. Can you
0: explain what you mean when you say liturgical? Do you mean to say what like, the studies I, the Bible? Bible no, or?
1: liturgical means that it's that it has a service which is which is a pattern, right? It's it's based on it's not just a so it's like let's say a evangelical church today, they'll get together, they'll sing songs, and uh, they'll have a sermon. But they'll say things like we could do it, we could do whatever. Like we you know, there's no doesn't matter what you do. There's no structure. You know, there's oh no you mean no structure, structure for your life or no structure for no the structure meetings? No structure for the meetings, right, no structure for the church. And so liturgical means that there's an order of service. And so there's we, we, we do things in a certain order. So like
0: the Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah. Well they're do you not know how they're liturgical. They? Oh, no. Okay. More <laughs> like they're more like, a, they're more, like a, more like the evan- evangelical, evangelical, yeah, Baptist. Yeah, more like evangelical
1: church? Baptist, Yeah. So liturgical is like Anglican, Catholics, Orthodox. They're liturgical so they sing they they, they have a the building the the, the the architecture of the building is meaningful the order of the service is meaningful the way the, the the priest is dressed is meaningful everything is is done in a manner which is meaningful and which is uh which which manifests what you're trying to do right so it's not just it's not just arbitrary mm. so so anyway so i wasn't so i was going to a kind of evangelical church and um I felt like it was just lacking in, in profundity, lacking in meaning. And, and also, you know, I, I was reading philosophers and then I started reading authors from other traditions, Buddhist authors, Sufi authors. And I discovered mystical, the mystical way, you could say, the mis- mystical thinking and uh, transformational thinking, you could call it. And uh, I was really impressed by, by it. And then I thought, whoa, why is it that Christians don't have that? Like why is it that Christians don't have a mystical mystical transformations and mystical vision of how the world works and and all of that and and it was only because it did It's just I didn't know about it and then i that's when I discovered the early church fathers and uh traditional Christianity and then iconography so can you define what iconography is so iconography would be let's say a way of practicing art which is traditional in the sense that it has certain types, certain typology. It has a set of rules, um, kind of like if you write a sonata, right? You have certain rules, and then you you write within those rules. So iconography is the visual practice of the ancient church, which was developed, let's say if you went into a church in the year 1000 or 1100, anywhere in the world, you would have seen pretty much the same thing. And that was done without a top-down a you know imposition of what was going to be there, but it was just this kind of bubbling. It's like the
0: brand style guide for the church. The what? You know, for brand styles no, or, I don't know what that is. Okay, so when you design a website or or you have a company, it's like use these fonts, use these colors. Make sure that when you place the logo, you place it <laughs> this much of a distance between the the borders.
1: Well, I don't think no, I don't think that's the way to see it. The way to see it is to see it more like a a a vision a view of the world as full of meaning and full of pattern. And so the story of the world and the story of our lives is a a pattern. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. And so that pattern then can be found, let's say in scripture, can be found and then it, it transposes itself into the way that we worship, let's say. So the structure of how we worship in a church, in a traditional church, is patterned based on the same patterns as that you find in the in the bible so there's a center right there's the the altar and then that's the most holy place and then you can imagine a, a series of layers as you move out from that holy place remember when i told you a little bit about this idea of adding layers well you can see that also in the terms of sacred space where you have profane space which is outside the church and as you move in to the church then you 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 move towards the sacred center which is that which defines the space itself and which defines the community and which defines everything. So that structure, let's say of the architecture of a church, then in iconography, you have those same types of structures. So you have to know the, the, the types. It's like a, you have to understand that the reason why Christ is represented in a certain way is not arbitrary. It's there to show you what who Christ is. And so there's a certain manner in which you represent a figure to show you who what they are and what their place is in this bigger pattern. And did they do this consciously? Like they knew
0: that they were not copying or imitating, but that if this specific representation of Christ was being repeated in other parts of the world. Did they know that consciously that here's the proper representation of Christ, or here's what it's saying. We're at the center? Mm. because this is what's most holy and then here's what's profane in the way that you're articulating
1: it. Yeah, but, what but I, is think a mix, I think it's a mix of intuition and participation in the life of a community where we agree on certain things and we participate in the story. And so, for example, like if you would ask me, would it be conscious to put Christ in a central space? And you would say, well, yeah, but at the same time, what else are you going to put there? Because that's the center of... That's the incarnation. That's the point where heaven and earth meet. That's the, that's the, the focus of, of the, the origin of Christianity, the focus of Christianity. So it's like, where else would you put him? There's another
0: reason for the cross. It's something I've been thinking about. Another re- reason for the cross to be symbolized like this is because this represents the spiritual and this represents the profane, the mundane, earthly, and the proper places to be at both. But then the other reason why the earthly is a little bit higher is because it's more important to be slightly more spiritual than you are earthly.
1: I mean, uh, yeah, I've never thought about the second part that you said. For sure, the cross—the cross—is uh, meant to represent the union of heaven and earth. That's for sure. Um, and I think that a lot of people resist that because they say, "No, that's the shape of an actual cross, right? That's how a crosses there were made." Kind of
0: multiple meanings. But it's
1: like that's the thing: is that symbolism is not uh, symbolism is the coalescence of things. It's not a. It's not a. Just because it's a, it's, that's how crosses were made doesn't mean that it doesn't also mean that, especially in this context, that doesn't come to mean that. And it's there's also a
0: preponderance p- of things that are associated with Christ. And why would we choose the cross? Well, there's obviously obvious reasons why we would choose the cross. Yeah. But the cross as a symbol means
1: multi, has multiple meanings. Yeah. In it. And it, it definitely is a center, that's for sure. And, and if you look at the early church fathers, they'll say things like, uh, you know, the cross is everywhere. You know, look at bo- the a boat, a mast, uh, you know, a, a mast of a boat with a sail. That's a cross. And they'll, they'll, they'll point to crosses which exist almost naturally in the world and say, this is, the, you know, the image of the cross has been shown forever. You know, we, people need to just recognize what it's talking about. Like, what is the center? What What's at the center, actually? Like, what does unite heaven and earth? You know, that's the question. And that's that's. And, and of course, Christian's answer with the incarnation, that's the, that's the answer. But iconography is basically understanding the rules and the language of Christian art, why it's why it resembles what it does um, and then it's almost like an algebra and so you know the, the terms then you can if you need to improvise an image you can, but to improvise that image needs to be done within the general frames guidelines. and tenets that the iconography offers you. So it's a it's a truly traditional, truly traditional art in that sense.
0: Okay, so you started studying iconography because you were, your eyes were opened. Yeah, because you started studying Buddhism and you realized they have an interesting way of seeing the world.
1: Yeah, well it was it was a lot. It wasn't Buddhism. It was a little bit of Buddhism, a lot of uh, Sufi authors. Um, I read some some early modern uh, kind of Sufi converts. Uh, what Sufi? Sufi. Oh, Sufi is a mystical Islam yeah it's a, it's a branch of, 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 uh, of Islam which is which is far more mystical, analogical and uh, it's closer some people will argue with me if I say this, but it's closer to Christianity in in some respects hmm. because, of, because of its emphasis on love and because of it's emphasis on on transformational on the transformation of the person, all of that okay. to get
0: you into more hot water, yeah. than you already are. Do you fundamentally see Islam as a
1: religion of peace? <laughs> that the, I think that we need to see okay we need to see Islam for what for what Islam actually says and so religion re, Islam is a religion there are two spheres in Islam there's the there's the, the the sphere of peace and there's the sphere of war and Islam is the religion of peace in the sense that within Islam is peace and that's how that's how it's viewed in the Muslim world in the Muslim world that's how it's been presented and so you have the outside world, which is the, the, the space of war, and you have the inside of Islam, which is the space of peace. And one of the goals of Islam is to 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 bring peace, to bring the space of peace to the world. But that's why by becoming by becoming Muslim or or by submitting to Islam somehow by becoming a dhimmi, or you know by paying the, the, the tribute. And that's a that I mean a lot of Muslims don't think that today. A lot of I mean, I would say that most Muslims in the West don't 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 have that approach to Islam anymore, um, but traditionally that's what Islam. That's why Islam is an expansive has was from the beginning an expansive religion. You know, Judaism is not expansive. Judaism is is wants to recover the Holy Land. Like they just want their they want to get their 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 place With all it does that does cause trouble obviously we see that it's caused trouble since they're they're back there it's a difficult situation but uh, and Christianity it's it's kind of not clear you know because the Roman Empire converted to Christianity so then the the Roman Empire became Christian and so it's complicated to think it's not so much that then Christians went out and at least in the first, you know, thousand years, went out to and invaded other places. Although it probably happened, uh, you know, you get stories in the West. You get stories of of, uh, of uh, you know Charlemagne converting by the sword, and you get those stories as well. But they're always kind of iffy. But Islam is like, Islam exploded, became huge. If you look at a, a an image of the map at the year one thousand, you know, it's, it's 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 immense, and so yeah i mean i don't know i think that most muslims today are not especially people who come here it depends from where they come from and what intentions they have you know in quebec here a lot of the muslims who come here come from northern africa and they you know they just they want to work they want to have a good life they want to have a good family they want to to be left alone and do their thing and and uh yeah so
0: okay so let's get back to you were studying studying iconography and that allowed you to see the world and see stories through a particular lens Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. I was watching you give an interview. I mean, I was watching you have a conversation about the Spider Verse mm-hmm. with someone. Yeah, and that person then made a comment about some other some other aspect of the Spider Verse. And then you said, "Oh, and what that could mean is this, 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 and this." And then the guy said, "Oh, I didn't see that before." And then you said, "Oh, I didn't see it before until you mentioned it." Yeah. And that made me realize you—that's not something you thought about because for a tr- for a regular person a regular person who's even watching this, they would have to sit and think, okay, what could the Spider-Verse mean? Here's what I know. Okay, okay, hmm. Okay, this fits in here, this fits in here, this doesn't work, okay, okay. And then it would take them maybe 20 minutes to come up with something that you came up with in in the span of a sentence or two. Which means you actually see the world or you've thought about it for so long Mm -hmm. that it's just second nature to you. Yeah. And I want to know, how did that develop Mm -hmm. and how do you see the world? So do you see people... Walking down the street differently than you used to I uh, know. I mean that seriously because even people who study physiology, yeah. they can tell People's ailments just by watching right. them walk yeah. even if they look like they're normal Oh, yeah. you you slightly tilt yeah. in this direction. So it's almost like Sherlock Holmes And so you see people moving towards a subway and then you think okay, that's a that's a place of communion where people don't interact That's almost like what we had in the 12th century when this happened and this happened mm-hmm. So I want to know do you see the world like that?
1: No, I see I
0: and how did you start to see the yeah, world okay. the way you see the world? <laughs> um,
1: I mean, I think I I see the world through patterns, that's for sure. Uh, in okay, now
0: when you say patterns, yeah. I'm, I'm going to get specific here. So when you say patterns, you mean repetitions, parts yeah. of life that repeat, or parts of life that are abstracted. So for example, there's a pattern of talking, or I talk, you talk, I talk, you talk. Now that's a pattern. Okay, so it's repeating, or another pattern is is you abstract out from a certain set of so there's a pattern of what it means to be human.
1: Right. So it's I would say... Okay, so the pattern... You could say the pattern starts with how things exist, right? And, and when I say how things exist, what I mean is how they exist phenomenologically, not in terms of science, because that's what confuses people. In terms of experience. In terms of experience. How we experience things existing. And that's really the basis of how things exist no matter what we say. Like we, 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 we try to push beyond the phenomenological, but we always see it through the lens. So the scientist, even though he has all the scientific categories, he's still in a consciousness and looking at the world through that consciousness. And
0: Or yeah. she, he or she. He or she, yeah. Just, just don't send any letters. <laughs>
1: um, and so the, the way that something... For exa- I'll give you a, a perfect example. So the way that something exists... You need for something to exist to have it have an identity, right? And then have a, you could say, a variety. Say it that way. You need to have an identity and, and a variety or a, a oneness and a multipleness to it. Right? Can you give me an example? Well, so if I have a, so I, I have a cup. So this has an identity and it's, it's let's say its identity is, is the cup. That's part of it. It has, it has other identities let's use that one for, for, for start so it has an identity, it's a cup but then it also, it also is not just there is no such thing as a cup
0: mm-hmm. it's actually non-binary and it's offended that you defined it in terms of a <laughs> it's cup, of a
1: cup. Well, there's no such thing as a, as a, there's no pure cup right, not in the world right, so a cup has to have an, has to have a particular particularity to it okay. right? and the particularity to it is its variety, its multiplicity and then, in order for it to have particularity, then it has to embody other identities. So, it has a color. It has, you know, it has to have a color, right? But it, there's no color in the cup. Cup doesn't have color, but it has to have color for. So it to So there's
0: exist. there's the concept of cupness, which doesn't actually exist in the world in space and time, but it's a concept nonetheless. It's cupness, a, yeah, something so that makes something a cup.
1: Essence. It's a it's a concept. I try not to to get too tied up in. Because people will say, okay, you're being platonic. Just trying to, to, to see how things come to, to exist. And so, so there's an aspect of it which is one. There's an aspect of it which is multiple. And everything always has to, to, to have that. For anything to exist, it has to be one and multiple at the same time. Because it also has to be constituted, co- constituted by parts. So, okay, so you're saying
0: the elements of this that are not a cup are...
1: But also for even for it to be a cup, it also needs to be con- constituted with parts so it has one oneness Then it also has parts which are multiple and the the cupness of the cup holds the cup together All right so let's just say that You just have one and one and many just okay, that okay okay so if you have one and many just that yeah. you already have a basic pattern and then you could look at the world through one and many and and you can notice when things move towards one or when they move towards many or how they move towards one or how they move towards many Okay. So then let's do that in space. You A good way to represent it in space, best way to represent it in space, center, periphery. So you have a wheel, let's say, you have a center. The center is that which around everything else turns. And then as you move out from the center, you get more quantity, you could say. As you move towards the center, you get more quality. And so that's a basic pattern. So then you can look at a person like that.
0: Mm, that's, that's extremely interesting. You could also look at the political sp- Hear that sound? Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. You're like that. Yeah. Would you say the radical left is on the periphery and then the yeah. alt-right is in the extreme center?
1: Um, I struggle with this alt-right thing. But let's talk about the radical. Okay, the, let's talk about the
0: radical radical right. left. Okay,
1: so the, the Let's say the left. So you... Let's say right hand, left hand, we could use that, okay? So right, the right hand, traditionally, really, this is, I'm not making this up. The right hand, traditionally, is the tendency to move towards the center. And the left hand is the tendency to move away from the center. And so, for example, uh, Christ says, uh, when he's judging the world, he says to the sheep, he says, come into my kingdom. And to the goats, he says, depart from me, I never knew you, okay? So moving towards the center, moving away from the center. There's a rabbinical teaching that says exactly that, which is, you know, bring things closer to you with your right hand, move them away from you with your left hand, right? So you, now you can think of it as a person. Traditionally, in any traditional culture, almost every single traditional culture, you eat with what hand? You're right. You wash with what hand? You're right. You wash with your left hand. Oh. Because you're moving, because you don't want to eat with what you wash with. Mm. You go to the bathroom, use your left hand, mm. you eat with your right hand, mm. right? So you bring towards you with your right hand, you move away from you with your left hand, yeah. right? So you understand that that's just a basic pattern of being. Like a person has a tendency towards unity and a tendency towards outside, towards inside, towards outside. That's the, that's a pattern. That's the basic pattern of reality. Then you can, you can apply that to a society, Society has a basic identity, and it has ways in which you move towards that identity, and then it has a way in which you move away from that identity. But you could, moving away or closer is not moral, right? Because some things you need to move, you need to, to move away from you, and there's some things also that move away from you, for, from you for a good reason, right? In the sense that you could be extending yourself out into the world as well, right? And so... And so it, it's not, it, it's not, the patterns are not moral. There's no, in, in the pattern, there's nothing good or bad. They can become good or bad, depending on how they're used, for what reason they're used. But the pattern itself is, it just, then you can look at the world and you can, what, what I see when I look at the world is, that's what I see. I see how the pattern is manifested in different instances.
0: Hmm. Now, this detaching of moral judgments from how close you are to the center or how far you are from the center, is that a Buddhist concept, or does that fall in line with Christianity? Because I know Christianity has an has a an a, a, an emphasis, an emphasis on putting moral judgments on almost every aspect, and Buddhism is the opposite as far as I know, I could be wrong Fine. so does that, does that, okay, so you said look, there's the center, there's the moving away from the center yeah. and you can move toward you can move towards center, you can move away from the center it's not in and of itself a, I mean, it's not in and of itself moralistic to do one of, no, one of the others.
1: They both have danger and they both have opportunity. Okay. The, the Buddhist won't necessarily frame it in the same terms, but he, they will. They'll say the passions. They'll say you have these passions on the edges, let's say, on in yourself, and those passions are pulling you, are fragmenting you. They're pulling you apart. And in the Christian, the Christian way of describing the passions is the same way, especially in the Orthodox tradition. you have these passions, these desires? And these desires pull you away from your heart, let's say. And uh, and you need to go back to your heart. You need to 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 uh, to uh, let's say.
0: So that's a return, return to the center.
1: Return. Then you return to the center. Okay. Um,
0: and do they have in Christianity a pushing away from the center?
1: Well, it depends. Like I said, for example, I'll give you an example of a pushing away from the center, which is which is positive. Uh, Pentecost. Pentecost is when the disciples are in uh, the high place and then all of a sudden the, the fire of the Holy Spirit comes down upon them and then they start to speak and then everybody can hear them speak in their own language. And so as they're, they're speaking, then everybody else is hearing them speak in the language that they understand. So that's, that's a fire, right? That's fire. That's the left hand. That's moving away from the center. And so the message is, is being dispersed out into the, into the periphery. Because the, those who are outside hear the language, hear the message in their own language, and so that's a left-hand movement. It, it's a it's a it's a moving out, um, and so 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 like I said, it, it's not necessarily good good or bad. Uh, and then then there's also th- th- there's a bad left hand, right? This idea of giving in to your fire, giving in to your desires, giving in to your passions is this this being pulled away, you know, from yourself, and and that would be represented as a kind of left-hand uh, movement, you could say. Um, but there are also right-hand sins. So St. Maximus the Confessor, for example, talks about left-hand and right-hand sins. And he says, <clears throat> the left-hand sins are, you know, uh, gluttony, prostitution, uh, all the sins of the passions, like you let yourself go to to uh, to, to uh, uh, those types of desires. And the sins of the right-hand are pride, self-sufficiency, right? So now you can see where the the... the, the Moving into the center can become negative in the sense of, of pride, in the sense of thinking that you're that you don't need anything, mm. the sense of thinking that you're self sufficient, and so like I said, th- those patterns are not mm. they're not they're not negative or positive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just in their balance. Well, it just it just depends on on in the situation in the situation. It just depends on what is trying to be accomplished. So entering into the center in the sense of removing yourself from your passions and going into the center in order to to look up and see what's above you. Okay, so it's simply just a matter of appropriateness
0: to the situation. Right. Sometimes you need to be far, sometimes you need to be close. Yes, and okay. it, it just depends also... You could say a good so way... not necessarily... I, I was wrong when I said balance, because that would imply that there's a proper place to occupy in almost every situation, whereas it's actually different. Sometimes you just need to be completely right-handed, sometimes you need to be left-handed, sometimes you need to be a mixture of both.
1: So a good a good way to... So in terms of center and and, and periphery, for example, the good way to understand it is uh like it's called memory so if you're moving away from the center if you remember the center then it doesn't matter how far you go right so it's like you um if you remember yourself if you remember god if you no matter how you say it it doesn't you can go very far and you won't fall you could say you won't be taken in by whatever is pulling you out you know um does that
0: make sense? Yep, think, yep, yep, yeah. yeah. Okay, so now you see the world like this. You see that's the world you said you started to see the world primarily through the center periphery dichotomy and that's then...
1: one that's a, that's an easy way to understand it. Okay. At some point it transcends those those categories, but that's a, the best way to explain it, I think, is, is, is using hierarchy uh, like a like a mountain or a pyramid or center and periphery. Those are the best way to, to explain it. So
0: now when you watch something like a movie, how do you see the movie? What are you looking for? Are you looking for anything? Does it just unconsciously hit you, and you you realize it? It
1: just hits me. It doesn't. I don't. uh, I usually just watch a movie, and then I'll take a little bit of time, and uh, and then I I have insights.
0: Can you give me an example of your thought process from a a a, a recent movie so that it's fresh in your mind? So, some movie that you saw recently that you went in thinking, "Okay, I'm just going to watch this movie," and then what thoughts occurred to you, and then what thoughts occurred to you afterwards?
1: Okay, uh, so, okay, what did I, I just went to see Shazam with my kids. I went to see that movie. Uh, and uh, so that, the movie Shazam is about a young man, a young boy who becomes a superhero, an adult superhero, right? And, uh, and, he, and the movie is, for example, one of the images that keeps appearing in the movie is an image of the carnival. And the carnival keeps coming back. And so, for example, like, if, if an image like that keeps coming back, especially the carnival, then you say, "Okay, I need to pay attention to this because there's something going on here," <clears throat> and uh, and so the and so a carnival, for example, is is this edge. A carnival is the edge of the world. The best way to understand it, it's everything's upside down, right? Everything's spinning. Everything in a carnival is spinning all the time. You know, the Ferris wheel, the, all the rides, everything's spinning, uh, and <laughs> and uh, and everything is is uh, is is uh, garish. You know, all the colors are garish. Everything is there to, to, to uh, titillate you in that in that way. So it's all bad food. It's all it's all spinning. It's all uh, laughing and pleasure in the, in the very basis sense of of having fun. You know, and clowns and uh, uh, and impossible um, impossible uh, precision games where you try to hit the center, but you're not going to hit the center. No one hits the center, right? No one. Get, all those precision games where you win these big things, like it's they're they're very difficult. So it's like okay, so this is what's going on, and so then you think okay, so the story is about in the I don't want to give all these spoilers, but the story in uh, in uh, Shazam is about dealing with the seven deadly sins, and so it's like okay, so here's all of this going on at the same time. So these seven deadly sins kind of come out and possess this one man, you know, and then they they start to kind of attack the world and do all this stuff so okay so the seven deadly sins at a carnival it all kind of makes sense it's like it all kind of fits together it's not trying to say anything right it's not it's not like there's a message but the pattern is right and so when the pattern is right where the seven deadly sins appear at a carnival it's like it fits and then you when you look at when you're watching it you 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 have a kind of satisfaction which is a satisfaction of the world being right even if it's talking about the upside-down world, right? It's talking about these monstrous seven deadly passions that are coming to to suck to suck up the world, but it's having it in a carnival, which is an upside-down world already. And so all of this is going on, and so it's like even though it's showing you the the, the extremes, it fits because it's everything's in the right place. And so when when sometimes what can happen is if you could have it, you could have a place where it just is wrong, where it just doesn't doesn't work, where it's and, that, and
0: that's because you're interpreting it incorrectly or you feel like it's being forced on the part of the being filmmaker? Being forced,
1: exactly. It's just being forced. So there's a desire to, to give a message and so they'll push something in which will, which will force it. But the best way to force it is to, because it's difficult to get away from these patterns because they're the patterns of reality. Like you, all you can do is you can, you can make them upside down, you can uh, twist them, right? So you can't totally get rid of them. And so I think that a lot of the the modern kind of propaganda, that's what they do is they they twist them in a way. They kind of just toss them to it, make them in like the idea of yes, we need we can't avoid the masculine feminine archetypes. So what we'll do is we'll put a woman in the place of the masculine figure and we'll put a man in the place of the feminine figure.
0: They and fa- demean the man.
1: Sorry? And yeah, demean, and the, demean man. the man, denigrate him. So it's like so we're still using the same pattern, but we're just doing it in a way that's kind of flipping it upside down or playing with it in a way that is 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 confusing, or is meant to create uh, disjunction? You could say.
0: How does one know when they're reading reading too much into a piece of art? Something that Peterson's been criticized with for on a minor basis, like when you when he's looking at Pinocchio. How do you know you're not reading too much into it? So, how does one prevent themselves from reading too much in? Is there such a thing as reading too much into art?
1: Of course, yeah, for sure. And I think that. The way that, for example, what I do is I just point at the pattern. So it's not I'm, not I'm not actually interpreting the movie usually. When I interpret a movie, I'm not interpreting in the sense of saying this aspect of the movie represents, uh, you know, um, I don't know, represents uh, Hitler. And this aspect, this, this, this character in the movie represents Stalin. And here, this is what, it's like, I'd never, I would never make an interpretation of a movie like that, you know. I'll say, he, look at the pattern. Right? Here are, the, here are, the, here are the, uh, the terms of the pattern. Right? You have someone on the inside. You have someone on the outside. How are they interacting?
0: So we're talking about how does one know when they're reading too much into art? And you were saying, well, I'm not going to substitute different elements of the film and say this represents the struggle of man and this represents the church and this represents Hitler.
1: Yeah, usually a movie will give you its pattern. It'll 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 lay it it'll because it has to right it, the movie has a pattern in order for you to even recognize it as a story it ha- especially movies that especially movies that are trying to make money movies that movies like little art type movies where the person doesn't care whether or not anybody watches it usually those you're hopeless like you're hopeless in terms of pattern but movies that are actually trying to attract a lot of people they have to. They, no matter, they, even if the person isn't conscious about it, in order to attract a mass amount of attention, they, they have to embody certain satisfying patterns that human beings have within them. It's necessary, for, because or else people won't go see them. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Or the cynic would say it's just marketed well.
1: That's not true, because we, we know movies that have been massively marketed which have failed, right? And so, you know, maybe they'll have that first bump, but then it'll all go away. Whereas, whereas, if you really want to attract a lot of attention, you need to, to have that pattern. And so the idea is, the movie will usually tell you, like what's going on. And so you just need to let the movie tell you what's what's happening. And trying, to, I I always try not to go outside of the movie, like the least the least that I can, like try not to reference anything outside the actual story that's going on, and to just say. Well, this character says this. This is what he does. This is this is how this is his struggle. He's telling you what's his struggle. He's going to tell you this is this is this is his problem. He's going to tell you what the solution is. But then all I'm going to try to do is show you how that is a pattern and how it would how it's a pattern. And then once I've done that, then I can say, okay, now this pattern. See this pattern? This is the same as this other pattern. This other pattern. This other pattern. Like, see how uh, you know, like. For example, the pattern of resurrection, you know, I and mean, that pattern is there everywhere. Someone dies or almost dies and then gets back up at the end. It's like you see it in so many movies, you know, that's a, it's just there. It's just there in the story. You know, I, I can show you that it's there. And then once I've shown you that it's there, then maybe we can start to talk about what it means, but it, it's no longer now about just that one movie. Right. It's about that pattern, which is there in several other stories. And now we can talk about what it what it's what it's referring to in terms of existential reality. Um, And so to me, if you stay within those those frames, you have less of a danger of of kind of going overboard. One of the things that happens and it's happened to me is that sometimes you'll see a pattern and you won't see a counter pattern. You won't see you'll see you'll. You'll want to see one aspect of the pattern too much, then you won't see something else that's going on. So that's that's totally possible.
0: Well, can you explain what you mean? You mean to say that you, as the person who's interpreting the piece of art, wants to see a certain pattern, and so it blinds you to a counter pattern? Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> that means that, in, in other words, you're selectively choosing. Well,
1: that's what a pattern is, right? A pattern is, is is, is the, is the selectivity, because just like a movie, just like any other reality, has an indefinite amount of details. Right? It's a you could talk about the way the leaves are moving in the story, but you're not gonna talk about that because that's not what interests you. And so you'll focus on the characters, for example. You could say, you know, you could interpret you could you could you could ask if you were just a uh, kind of nihilist, you could ask, why are you focusing on the characters when you're watching a movie? Why aren't you focusing on... Uh, on the, the top network? right pixel. Exactly. Or the, yeah, the, the the way the wind is blowing or
0: Well, happens. some people who have autism do that. They don't actually yeah, look at characters on... Yeah, they don't look at characters in the eye. You can watch them. You can track their, their eye fixations and they don't look... So right now I'm looking at you in the eye mm. and they don't watch the characters. They look at the light bulbs. They watch how this swing is swinging.
1: Yeah. And capacity to kind of bring things together. Um, and so that's so it's inevitable that you will do like you will selectively choose, but sometimes there there can be other patterns that are there that you that you might ignore, that you might that you might marginalize, you could say. And that's a, it's in a way it's kind of inevitable, but hopefully you try to not to not do it too much and also to be able to. To see both and to see both sides, I think the best interpretations that I've done for movies have been the ones where I'm able to show the two sides. Let's say to almost sometimes imagine as if you could see the movie from from different aspects.
0: So let's say you're an artist and you want to create something that's not propagandistic that doesn't try to you don't try to instill your own values into the art Mm -hmm. because otherwise Jung would call that Jung Carl Jung would call that propagandistic versus exploration art or he called it the difference between introverted art and extroverted art so introverted art is the art where you're trying to you have your own intentions and it's, you're just using the art as a tool to let the world know what you think yeah. politically it's, it's usually political but yeah, it could be whatever it could be you're the main character in the film because you're filming it yourself and you want people to feel sorry for you Yeah. It could be whatever Or you want, you had a bad experience with the father and now you want to make sure that people, when they look at their fathers, they have a bad experience with their father. Like they look at fathers negatively. Okay. then he said there's extroverted art where it just comes through you. You're a conduit for which these ideas flow from. Mm -hmm. And you don't even know what you're doing when you do it. And until it comes together as a cohesive whole, maybe you can look back, but maybe you can't even look back. And as much as you try to explain it, you realize it's deeper than my explanation. You come back one year from now, and there's more. There's more to it. More to it. More to it. Religious. Bi- bi- religion is like that. Bibles are. The Bible is like mm-hmm. that. So Jung would call that extroverted art. What advice would you have for artists who would like to not fall prey to introverted art? They yeah. want to be. They want to do art that will
1: last. That will stand the test of time, and not. Right, well, it's, I think it's difficult. It's difficult for me to answer that question because the, I'm not making the kind of extroverted art that that Jung is talking about. That the that I let's say the liturgical art that I make is is a, a is a desire to participate in a community and a communal language, and so it's very different. It's neither me trying to impose my vision of the world on others, nor is it this kind of surrealist type of exploratory art where you like you said like you just kind of let yourself go and you don't know what you're doing it kind of almost uh, you know like a, like a medium or something um, it's it's completely different it's re, it's actually trying to participate in a common language and so so like I said I that that to me I've chosen that as being the most because the problem with well, I don't see
0: anything wrong with that because let's say you're a poet. You're using the language of English or right. whatever language you're using. So you're using the, the language of iconography and then you're constructing within that. Yeah. So I don't see that as necessarily being opposed to introverted art or extroverted art. I mean, I don't see that as you trying to will a certain point of view. Yeah. I just see it as you using a language.
1: Well, maybe it's because maybe it's because of my idea of, the, the, of how I understand what you're talking about when you talk about the extroverted art, which is this kind of um, you know, this kind of letting it flow, right? They're almost like a surrealist, like how they they make ski um, or how they would they would automatic writing, all that kind of stuff.
0: I think you can just think of it as the absence of an intentional message,
1: right? Well, yeah, no, I I I think that in terms of of uh, of reducing a message, I would say I think that in understanding the complexity of traditional stories it's probably a way to to help that in the sense that to try to always see the... The Old Testament characters are some of the best for that. right? You can read the Bible, the Old Testament characters, and you can read them as the hero and almost every single character, you can read them as a villain, almost every single one. You can see how they actually... <clears throat> there's a shady aspect to what they're doing. Okay. You can do that about, you can do that about every single character in the old Testament. It's really fascinating by the way to do that. Uh, And I think that being aware of that is, is probably helpful is to understand that there are two sides to, to the symbolism all the time. There's always, there's always always two sides. And that's
0: something that's wrong or missing in modern movies. Like, like you said, the one with the, the, the reversal of Little Mermaid, what was it called? Ariel Gal or the Del Toro, whatever. Oh, the it. the shadow, of the shape of water. Yes, the shape yeah, of water. A... That the white male was just—he's bad. There's no good to him. Hey. He's just bad. If you label them as bad, you're correct. Yeah,
1: it was. No, yeah, that was definitely definitely propagandistic movie. That movie in every in so many ways it was propagandistic. Uh, and so I think that that's. It's like I also I also don't have a problem with having. Uh, a bad character. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if you look at, like in Lord of the Rings, if you look at a character like Gollum, for example, I mean, that's a that's a great character, too, because he's he's bad. He's a bad character. But he's also like an extension of Frodo. He, you know, you, you know that he's where Frodo could go. Like, if he let himself go, he could go there. So you can see Gollum and Frodo, and you can see Frodo and Gollum a little bit, too. And so that's a powerful story, because you can you you have these two characters one which is like a good character one which is a bad character but it's also not just it's not a simple simple relationship there's a relationship where one is like the promise of the other in a certain manner and so that makes it far more subtle and far more engaging in my opinion
0: i was trying to think of when is it okay to actually just have a character which you can outright categorize as bad and i wonder if it's only when they are a representation of satan so like let's say sauron
1: yeah yeah, he's like, he's not even embodied, right? He's like a, he's just like a, he's just an idea almost, you know? I mean, he, obviously he's a being, but he's not, he's not embodied in the world. They don't encounter Sauron, you know? They, they encounter him through kind of third, second, uh, second tiers or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think so. Maybe that's a good way to, to, to understand it. I've actually thought about Sauron quite a bit sometimes about if, if it's too easy, right? if that character is too easy. Um... But like but then said, someone could criticize the Bible. <laughs> someone right. could
0: criticize the Bible and say, "Jesus is too easy. He's too good." And the Satan is too bad. He's that's too easy.
1: Yeah. Well, si- But
0: it's like that's the point. It's supposed to be the extreme. So maybe it's okay when it's supposed to be the extreme. Well, the thing but then- that
1: people don't understand that Christ does not fit that category. People people don't know the story of Christ or they you read the story of Christ. The story of Christ is the most the, the most Elated and disturbing story at the same time. Christ says some stuff that people don't like to cite because it just. If you want to just make Christ into a simple good guy story, it's not. That's not. Give us an example. Well, Christ says, "I came to bring fire to the world to turn brother against brother." Christ said uh, on the cross, "Father, why did how why did you abandon me?" Christ said, uh, "You know." Christ said to Peter, "Bring a sword." And then when Peter takes his sword out and cuts off the ear of a soldier, he stops him and says, no, don't do that. Like, okay, so man, why did he say, what?
0: okay, that's another conversation. I'm not going to answer those mystical questions <laughs> for you.
1: What I'm saying is that Christ is a far more complex figure than what we want to believe that he is. You know, think of Christ, think of crazy story. Think of Christ there as the rabbi who is... The one who who brings who's bringing the word and the truth and all that. And imagine a whore washing his feet with perfume. Like think of Christ as the one who 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 hung out with with uh, you know with Samaritans, with strangers and and the marginalized and all that. And that's how the left want to portray him, for example. But then he also goes and hangs out with a tax collector, who's basically a uh, who's basically a a. a a stooge for the Romans who's a, who's basically a tool of the of the Empire to control us and so Christ goes all directions Christ goes in every direction it's like you you read once if you understand the types that that are in that are in stories and you read Christ's story you know I've read I've read scholars complain that we don't know how to how how to, to frame Christ because he's a he's a he's a teacher but he's he's like a rabbi figure. He's also like a prophet figure. But then he's also like the son of a, of a worker. He's also he's also like a woodworker. He's also uh, you know he hangs out with fishermen. But then he's, he he talks to and it's like all he 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 kind of fills up all the stories. And so and so that's why that's the story of Christ is very it's it's very difficult to well
0: getting back to propagandistic. Yeah. This is what's interesting, because it's not simple. It's not. It's, you can't frame this person as good or bad. Now, that's standard in screenwriting. Never make your protagonist purely good. Never make your antagonist purely bad. Can we go a little bit beyond that as to how can we stop ourselves from consciously trying to push a message?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that... I think that... There's simple ways, there's ways that have been told to us forever. I mean, just Aristotle told us, give your characters a fatal flaw. Like it's not a it's not it's not it's not a mystery, you know, give them something that could destroy them, you know, and either it does or it doesn't, but make sure that it's there, that your even your hero has a, has a has something that could devour them. Um, and I would say the same for your enemy, right? Make your enemies convincing, make them make them a twisted version of something true. Right. Don't just make them a random bad guy who if you make them a a twisted understanding of something of something which actually has value, then then those that makes for powerful bad guys. Like, for example, the in the in the last Avengers movies, the Thanos character, that was a great character was a great evil character because he actually he actually talks about things that people care about today. He talks about ecological disaster. He talks about, you know, all the things that even the left cares about. But then he pushes it to such an extreme that you kind of shy away from it because, it's like, okay, okay, where are you going with this? You know, so, versus
0: *The Shape of Water*, which is like
1: oh, *The Shape of Water* is just trash. It's a trash movie <laughs> because it's because it it doesn't. I mean, in in every single way, like, there's so many ways in which *The Shape of Water* is trash because it it's just it's almost like a cliche it's like it's almost a cliche of of you could guess each character what's going to happen to them you know when it when it starts and uh you know the the, there's oh there's some there's some especially the bad guy that 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 the bad guy in the movie some of the things he says that are so bad in terms of they're so obvious that it hurts what is it there's one scene when he says something he goes to the bathroom and he said, "You can learn a lot about a man whether he washes his hands before, before or after." Or after, and I'm like, "Oh my goodness, like this, is, you're mm. so And you don't you obvious.
0: don't do it twice because that shows weakness.
1: Yeah, it's like you're so obvious, you know. You're so obvious about him being, you know, excessive purity and all that stuff. But yeah, it's just part for the course by now. It's nonstop. You know, there's this movie coming out just now. I, what's it called? It's like these monstrous dolls, and you know, it's, it's just not. I mean we've kind of swallowed this this thing right now and this is this is this is where society's going in this direction. I don't know where it's going to lead because it can't sustain itself. You can't you can't have a world of exceptions.
0: Do you see Hollywood contributing to this problem?
1: Oh for sure. Since the beginning, I think. I think that I think that
0: <sighs> this problem of polarization or this problem of
1: what? The thing is that it it falls into the it's the problem of entertainment culture itself. That's a problem. We the the idea that our cultural repre- our cultural artifacts are entertainment. That's a problem. We don't we don't we don't realize that it's 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 basic. It comes back to what I talked to at first when I talked about art. When I told you that that traditional art integrates in us in a culture, right? So traditional uh, storytelling was part of festivals was part of of uh, you know gathering around the campfire and telling the story of our ancestors it was about you know uh, putting on masks and, and, and wearing the costumes and playing out the these characters but in a manner in which we're participating in it we're so, we're doing it on this date because it's it's, re- it's to remember something that happened in so our there's a shared there's
0: a shared principle united under purpose
1: yeah, purpose and, and, and just the fact that we're together, all of this comes together. And so the problem is that now almost all our culture artifacts are there to entertain us. They're there to, they're like a giant circus. Our culture, the, last, the last remaining culture artifact we have is basically a circus. It's there to, it's just there for, for, uh, to, uh, to keep us distracted.
0: Okay, last question. When do you see the left going too far?
1: I think, I think the left, the purpose of the left is to ask questions, you could say, is to say, what about this, right? So you have some identity, doesn't matter what it is. And then the right hand's like this. And then the left hand's like, well, yeah, well, what about this? What about that? Like, how does this like the role of the skeptic? Yeah. Like, well, how does this fit? You know, and, and why doesn't this fit? And well, what did you think about this? You know, it's like, oh okay, yeah, you say, you say this, but you're leaving this aside, right? You're not considering this. And so in society, that ends up being exactly kind of what we see, which is this like, oh, you forgot the exception. Don't forget the exception. There's your rule, but there's also exceptions. Some people don't fit. So you have to, you have to remember them. Don't forget the exception. You know, um, the problem happens when we try to make the exception the norm. It doesn't work. You can't have a world of exceptions. It just doesn't exist. it can't exist it just it crumbles and so I think that that's the the problem that we have now is that we want we went from wanting to care for marginalized identities to this the 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 idea that somehow an accumulation of marginalization will make you into a heroic figure that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do that. Does it just because you are marginalized doesn't make you pure? Like it's like, it's like you're flipping it upside down. It's like the identitarians are saying, just because I am of this group, I'm fine. Just because I am, you know, white or I'm, I'm a man or I'm this, just because of that, then I'm sufficient and I'm fine it's like I'm pure right that's the that's the bad but but now what we have this weird crazy left is the very same thing just upside down there's a, it's like a, it's like a competition of purity but like a competition of exception if you can be the most exceptional in the sense that you are the most marginalized then <coughs> then you you're playing the same purity game just upside down it doesn't work you need you need the two like you need you need you need the the, the, the statement of of identity and then you need things that are there on the on the margin which say hey hey don't don't think you've got everything because i'm here to show you that you haven't accounted for everything right you haven't accounted for everything <coughs> and and i think that that's that's the normal balance you know all right <laughs> man thank you so much well i hope i hope it's it was useful we'll see what it looks like